Happy holidays, ladies, gentlemen, and envies. Welcome to our third and final Christmas Ghibli on Princess Mononoke. It is I, the subtle doctor. Uh, I guess you are Santa for the duration of this podcast, giving you the gift of anime discussion uh, about Hayao Miyazaki, Studio Ghibli, Princess Mononoke, and uh, the eventual end of the world, maybe, unless we can figure shit out. Um, along with me, ever-present partner for these casts, and all casts, honestly, it is the hardest-working man in pod business, and, uh, got the nicest wrench collection I've ever seen. It's Shadon. Evening, everyone. I'm very, very excited to be covering the Japanese adaptation of Fern Gully, The Last Rainforest. Man, I don't even know if that's an insult, because it's been so fucking long since I've seen Fern Gully. I feel like it's the one and only thing I should say on this podcast, and I should just walk away into the sunset. My work here is done. <laughs> is that how you feel? Is is Ferngully good? No. I don't know. It, I... it has one good thing in it, which is Tim Curry. But Tim Curry's good in everything. Yeah. So that's kind of like, yeah. you know, not exactly a, a perk. That's like saying, oh, you know what? Like, this meal you've served is complete shit, but it's on a gold plate. Doesn't mean you can't put anything else on that plate, you know? Well, then I'm just going to say that you're wrong <laughs> about Princess Mononoke. I think it is it is far better than that. Oh, I, I should have I, said I, that I, anyway. I, I know that. I know. <laughs> oh, man. I'm just, I'm, just uh, getting so, the, I'm just getting the hot takes out of the way now. Right. Getting them out okay, of my system as early enough. as I possibly can. Didn't you already do this movie with Nausicaa? <laughs> yeah, there's there's another one. Like, Isn't the message the same? It's so environmental. Um fuck off person that I just summoned into this podcast. You go away and you don't come back. We don't need your kind around here. This is a this is a, a space in which we praise and gush upon the works of Studio Ghibli. Um especially this one, Shadon. As we I think have done before we've gotten into the nuts and bolts. Um I will lay out my cards on the table, my proverbial cards. Uh, I love this fucking movie. <laughs> I've probably seen this movie more than I've seen any other animated thing. I mean, so it, if I rewatch a TV series a bunch of times, obviously I will have spent more time, more actual hours watching the TV series. But just in terms of number of times I've completed an anime story from beginning to end, um, this movie is... Uh, far and away ahead of everything else by a whole heck of a lot because I've watched it just, I mean, I think maybe 20 times 
which is way more than most anime things. Like, I'll be doing good if I watch an anime thing twice, honestly. Hmm. Yeah, this is true. Like, I- I'm going to put up my card simply on the table here. Now, I know this will surprise you all because apparently I have this impression, I think, that people think I might live on the moon or some other celestial <laughs> body that's not of mm-hmm. Earth, given how many anime that I have not seen. I'm still, like, even however many years after we started doing this podcast, a relative novice in this field. But I have seen Mononoke before. I haven't, you know, we've done three Ghibli films now, and I have at least seen one of them that we're covering yeah. before we start talking about on the podcast. And it was kind of a... It was a good experience, actually, because I ended up watching it in a, a club, actually, as a matter of fact. A quick shout out to Fab Cafe in Manchester, which is a frequent haunt of mine on nights out. They actually hosted, um, for a while at least, I don't know if they still do anymore, but they were hosting nights where they would have, like, I think it was like uh, J-pop discos and stuff like that. And in the earlier part mm-hmm. of the evening, they would screen films. So, for example, I think Tech on Kinreet, if, you, if that's what it's called, was one of them. Uh, they Kinreet. Yep. Yeah. That that one. Uh, Teppanyaki. I think the comic, right, the comic oh, yeah. is uh <laughs> right, yes, Technodrome. Uh that's uh oh, I, why can I not remember the name of the uh mangaka? It's the same uh author that did Ping Pong, the animation, mm. as well as uh Go Go Monster, which is one of my all time favorite manga. The manga that Tech Tech on Concrete is based on is called Black and White. It's really, really good, by the way. You all should check it out. Which is why I'm assuming it's in color. Or is it actually in black and white? Oh, no, wait, no, is it a Peter Molyneux adaptation? No? No? No, really isn't. Okay, so back to this little uh, anecdote of mine. Um, so I uh, went to the night in which Mononoke was screening with my dad, actually, and watched it with him. Uh, basically, he just had like this open dance where he had a lot of chairs put down on the projector. And it was great. I actually really enjoyed the film, even at the time. It, like, this was a couple of years back. I don't think it was before you and I started doing the podcast, but it certainly was, if not before then, like in the very early days of Voridesho. And I really, really enjoyed that and the atmosphere that was there as well, like this kind of group watching. I'll say ahead of time, like when this forest spirit first appeared, I think at least three different people started going, Mega Elk! <laughs> oh my God. So, so this was in a club? Yeah. So like was clubbing happening around where no, it was it just no, like no no that was that was just in the earlier part kill the no, humans no. save the forest no it'd be um, hard to like emotionally invest no well it wasn't it wasn't uh, friends of the earth by way of pendulum I can say that much <laughs> but it basically the idea was the whole it was like a themed like I say J pop kind of night where they had mm-hmm. like you know Japanese like cosplayer. Uh, competitions all sorts of stuff like that and of course this movie screening and then once the movie screen all that was out of the way that's when they shifted over to doing the clubbing part where they would start playing music and opening up the dance floor for people so i didn't stay around for that it was happening on a work night at the time but yeah uh, this is not the first time i've seen mono okay uh, this is probably the this is the actual time i've taken real attention to it though i would argue because i mean there's only so far you can go like when you're drinking a couple of pints in the middle of an open like club uh, while people are going around with mega elk, which, mega elk, which is a great like, I know that there's been, I know with Premiere's recent release, like there's been a lot of concern about people like ruining films by whoop whooping through them when it's not appropriate. Oh right, the, the but, cheer groups. But this is that kind of environment where that was encouraged and that was very enjoyable. Um, so yeah, this is not the first time I've seen Mon Okay, and my opinion of it has only gotten better with a second viewing. Yes, dude. If- I have to say, st- sticking around for club activities after this movie, 
that'd be hard. I like, I'm not saying that the movie like depresses me. It just, um, it, I get very reflective after, and especially after this movie, like the thought of do like recreational drug use after watching this movie does not sit well with me. I would feel weird about it. <laughs> I think you, I think you have a strange opinion of what clubs are, Doc. Generally speaking, like, yeah, I've been to somewhere, you know, like they've been lining up the speed and the ketamine and all that. You know, all the flavors of the uh, Class A drug rainbow. But I've also been to clubs where the only drug they serve is alcohol. And, you know, bad pickup lines. I've only had a police officer explain to me what clubs are, Shadon. It was in the the D.A.R.E. program. I know what clubs are. I have an accurate picture in my mind. So so by by, by clubs, you, of course, mean, you know, a sex trafficking dungeon nightmare. It's exactly how Devil Man Cry Baby portrayed it. What where well every actually, club. Well what where underage kids can sneak <laughs> in and start fights by smashing Oh yeah, I guess I suppose that is actually kind of accurate. Oh. They take drugs and become the devil. <laughs> okay. I'm gonna steer us back on course. Um by saying what so when did I first see this movie? So I bought this movie on uh DVD, which I've since upgraded to Blu-ray, but I bought this movie on DVD sight unseen. Um I think right around the time it came out, like um, pr- pretty soon after, it was in my local Suncoast video, Rip Suncoast video. I miss you terribly. The sun is set um, on them. Whoops. I know. It was many, many people's, like, if not introduction, then, like, that is that is where the, like, the heat of the love affair with anime took place, was in the Suncoast. Um, they had a big anime section where you could buy it. Uh, in the U.S., and you could just peruse through all kinds of VHS tapes and DVDs, and yeah, so I saw Princess Mononoke there. It was my 17th birthday. I think I was picking up stuff, and um, I saw the cover art, uh, and it said, you know, Roger Ebert had a quote on the box that said, the anime Star Wars, and <laughs> well, that's not exactly, I don't think, how I would sort of frame the movie. Um, it was a good enough quote for me to where I was like, okay, I'm checking this out. And uh, I didn't know anything about uh, Ghibli, Miyazaki. You know, I would learn the following year whenever he won uh, the Oscar for Best Animated Film. But um, but yeah, I'm so happy I picked it up and I have like played that disc to the point where I mean, who knows if it still works? Honestly, you know, can <laughs> I just, can I so just backtrack and say like when you said that um, what was it? Roger Ebert said it was. Was it Ebert? Sorry, I must. I, it was. It yeah. was Roger Ebert. Yeah. Yes, when, Ro- when you said that Ebert said it was like uh, the anime version of Star Wars, you do realize now that every time I watch this film from here on out, when uh, Ashtaka like and San hold up the uh, the head to the Night Stalker, all I'm going to hear is Han Solo's line: "Is oh, blow the sink in, let's go home." <laughs> da 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 da. Yeah. That, that seems ruined now because of my headcanon having no containment <laughs> like or barriers between franchises and, and no. such. It's all over. Gosh, I'm sorry I've I'm sorry I've done that to you, Shadon. But that's worse. But maybe talking about um maybe talking a bit about the film in terms of the people behind it will will divest the two franchises from one another in your brain. Um because as much as I love Star Wars, I don't think Star Wars can hold the candle to this movie in terms of the accolades it has won. Mm, I um, would agree. So uh, we've already talked about like the the principal creatives in other Ghibli casts, so I won't belabor. Uh, you know, Hayao Miyazaki wrote and directed the movie. Tosho Suzuki produced it, and the music uh, 
was by the ever-present uh, Joe Hisaishi. It, okay, let me lay this out here for you. You've, you've seen a, a Ghibli or two. One or two in my off hours. Uh-huh. And most of them, I think, have had music by Hisaishi. So agree or disagree, this is uh, peak Joe Hisaishi. This is him at his best. Ooh, I, I'm going to say it's definitely up there, that's for sure. I'd probably need to see more Ghibli to actually, like, make a conclusive answer on that. But he, well, has he ever done bad work? I don't think he has. Well, no, 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 no. This is not at all. I mean, so I don't know if you've seen Naushka, but I know you've seen uh, Totoro and Kiki and um, Kaguya and Laputa, mm-hmm. um, which are all r- just amazing. Everything oh, yeah. that guy does is great. You know, Spirited Away, great. Um but this is my absolute favorite. I think his, uh, like the the main melody that he composed for like the the motif that is present throughout a lot of the movie is so strong <laughs> and so memorable. The tracks for the conflict are pretty incredible. Um, the very like soft kind of ethereal music that plays during the quieter moments. Uh, Moro and Ashitaka are staring kind of across the. There's a vo- that's actually a vocal track, but there are other ones. Um, there's a really fun song when the Kodamas are leading them through the woods. Yes, it's very like do 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 like sort of light rain falling. It reminds me of like a scene in Bambi whenever rain is falling on the mushrooms. It's got that sense of whimsy and wonder that you need for a moment like that to help sell this like these spirits to you as the audience. Like that they're you know it perfectly complements their very goofy nature. I mean totally. I mean we basically witnessed the birth of the emoji in that scene. That was quite <laughs> I'm not hearing you disagree. Did you really go there? <laughs> the birth of the emoji. Oh. And you mean to tell me wow, you can turn the, the Kodamas into emojis and that they all aren't each a unique emoji? I think that's where they've all gone now that the forests are, are gone. They've they've uh, What a horrific fate. M- they migrated to America online. Oh, that's dispersed. even worse. <laughs> Jesus <laughs> Christ. The internet. Lost, lost in one of millions of unused <sighs> trial discs. Ah. Oh boy. They found their way home through AIM. <laughs> this was a 1997. I believe it was released in Japan, made its way uh, to the US and other countries in 2001. So the year that it came out, 97, End of Evangelion also came out. End of Evangelion won the Japan Academy Prize for biggest public sensation of the year. I, I was going to say, like, that seems to me like, you know, like, most biggest public sensation. That could work both ways. I'd be careful if you win that award. Just be under no, uh, you know, illusions as to why you've won it. Well, sensation. Sensation being a positive okay. descriptor. Um, not like the most notorious or, you know, hated thing. Anyway, anyway, we're not here to talk about EOE. I just think it's interesting they both came out in the same year. Um, 
because a lot of people are like, you know, oh, End of Evangelion was this like risk taking movie, unlike, you know, the Ghibli film this year or whatever. And um, I've, I've seen people make that quote. And I love Evangelion so much. I love EOE so much. I think it's incredible art. This movie, though, I, I this is. I don't know if I'll be able to really convey my feelings for this movie like appropriately because I just think in the, uh, so many ways it's like just this unparalleled work. It's where everyone working on it was at their best. Yeah. I mean, this is like kind of the middle of the road for us in terms of the, at least temporarily, in terms of the Ghibli movies that we've covered. We had Laputa, which came about a decade earlier. Then, of course, we had Kaguya, which came about a decade and a bit later. So we're mm-hmm. kind of in the middle here, but in a strange sense, like, we we have, like, the bridge between those two works, because obviously Laputa, you know, entirely hand-drawn, there's some CG in um, Princess Monoki. It is very limited and only uh, used for specific effects, which we'll discuss when we get to them. And then, of course, we go to Kaguya, which is his own beast entirely. And again, though, I can't stress it as much as you find difficulty in, like, you know, getting across the nuance of this. I myself find it very uh, difficult to stress just how fluid this film looks when it's in motion. Oh my gosh. It is, yes, so fluid and fluidity supported by um, these really striking details and like attention to small things that I think really, I mean, like we've said about other Ghibli films, but like just, just put like certain scenes over the top. Just like like when Ashitaka in the beginning is like running up the uh, watchtower to see the like doom marching upon his village in the form of Nago, the boar demon. Mm-hmm. The way he like scrambles up the tower um, is so smooth and so fun. I'm just like, wow, all these frames. I'm not used to so many frames. And then like uh, just the, and the way he moves, not just that it's fluid, but like the way they they make him move and climb is is incredible and then when he's sort of uh trying to make his elk yakul run away like he can't get his attention by calling down because yakul is just so stunned that this demon is tromping out of the woods and he has to fire an arrow into the like thick wood uh pole of the tower mm-hmm. and just something about like the sailing of the arrow and the thunk sound to get him to run um and the fact that he was sort of stunned into like he was just paralyzed with fear like i don't know just something about all that together like rolled into a single scene like it works for me on such a deep level yeah and of course then there's the i mean this particular scene i'm about to mention has been shown numerous times on reviews and clips and interviews regarding prince smokey but i'm of course referring to the one where san attacks iron town just before the midpoint of the Mm. film and watching her run up to attack lady aboshi like everything it's it's insane. I mean, to give you one idea of like just how impressed I was, when she is shot in the head, which because she's wearing a mask, that shot is like, it would have been so easy for a lesser studio simply to have her obscured in a haze of smoke and not have to animate the painstaking detail in which the mask shatters into like yeah. two dozen pieces and then knocks her over in the same fluid motion and renders her unconscious. Lesser studios, lesser, you know lesser animators without such a ridiculously strong work ethic they'd have gone with that and being honest i probably would have been okay with that but being okay with something is not the same as being enamored with something or 
you know, utterly bedazzled by it as I was with this film. And again, how it feels very kinetic in a lot of parts. And yeah, I should stress, uh, which we'll discuss when we get more to the plot. This is probably one of the most disgusting Ghibli films I've personally seen. Now, when I say disgusting, I don't mean as in like the actual themes and ideas are awful. But just visually, I'm I'm talking like John Carpenter's The Thing disgusting, which, by the way, is not the last time I'll be referencing John Carpenter's The Thing. Points to you, listener at home, if you know ahead of time why I'm making that reference. When the gods, for example, start becoming corrupt. And that is Mm. sold by the, again, the fluidity of the animation of like all these proboses and tentacles and whatnot and like writhing masses that come off them. This, is, by the way, is the CG element I mentioned. Even then, this is still... It still really, really sells just how grotesque the whole thing is. You can't spell fluidity without fluid. <clears throat> you get a, you get a <clears throat> lot of it in that. <clears throat> and that does transformations. And and just to uh, br- sort of talk about... Uh, gosh, we're getting ahead of ourselves. I was supposed to talk about the accolades the film has won. Mm. And instead, I talked about End of Evangelion. But I, I think... I, I love this movie... Um, I love the way that uh, it's able to convey the momentum of bodies, like physical, like um, animals and humans, um, with like the running and and the climbing and the jumping. Like the scene when Ashtaka has, I think, briefly kind of comes to a, a crossroads mentally when he's been kicked out of uh, the Wolf Tribe territory and he's being rained on, and then he he chooses to go help uh, the women of Iron Town. And he's being shot at, and he and Yakul like gallop up to the edge of a lake and jump to a small rock, and then jump off that, and then you get full body extension of Yakul to get as far as he can into the ocean. Just something about the way that they animate that momentum, like it, it really rings true to like, like just the inertia and the momentum of the run up and the leaps and the extension. I could just watch it over just that jump over and over and over again. And that paired with the sound design, um, just to make it or just a real satisfying thing to look at and hmm. behold. Absolutely. But okay, really quickly here. So uh, in 1998, cast your mind, if you will, back to the, the halcyon days of the, uh, Oh boy. The late 20th century. So the, uh, Japan Academy Film Prize Association is this entity that, of course, awarded film prizes to Japanese movies, uh, as I explained the most obvious thing ever. Um, (laughs) But like back then, their attitude toward animated films prior to 98 was was like, eh, you know what I mean? Like these are sort of, I guess, similar to what like the uh, American Film Academy's attitude toward animated films is like. They have their own category, so they're never going to win the best film award. Mm. Um, that's how the Oscars are, and that's how uh, the uh, Japan Academy Film Prize was. Um, they gave like special recognition to I think Totoro and Kiki's, uh, and like I said, they made the the best film award um, or best animated film award rather. But then in 1998, uh, Princess Mononoke uh, won best film from the Japanese Academy Film Prize Association. Wow. Yeah. It was the first ever animated film to be nominated and to win that prize. Uh, and that's just one of many accolades it's won. So it won Best Film and Best Animation Film um, and the Japanese Movie Fans Choice of the 52nd um, Mainichi Film Awards. 
um, Hayao Miyazaki won Best Director, um, and the film won Yujiro Ishihara, uh, the Yujiro Ishihara Award from the 10th Nikon Sports Film Awards. The Japan Academy Awards, of course, we said, gave it uh, the Picture of the Year. The Blue Ribbon Awards, the 40th iteration of that, gave it a special award. The Hochi Film Awards, the 22nd iteration of that, gave it a special award. It And that was in Japan. The <laughs> the Ford Film Awards are, I don't think, um, worth mentioning. Uh, although it was nominated uh, for an Annie Award. Um, Hayao Miyazaki was for Outstanding ind- Individual Achievement for Directing. Mm. But, of course, Miyazaki wouldn't really break through uh, till his next film uh, in the American award stuff hmm. but uh, but yeah it really cleaned up would, would, <laughs> you, would was... you say this was the point in which ghibli probably started getting more traction in western the western sphere so to speak Cause, oh 100 because because I, I think like if you look back at ghibli's works like we've obviously covered like two of them that are from very different ends of like ghibli's history this one being the interim one in the middle but for all that they've been good throughout there's the thing about good films is that well You'll never know they're good if you never see them, and you'll never see them if you never know about them. So it kind of took for a little, like quite a while actually, for I, mm-hmm. I at least from my perspective, for Ghibli to gain that kind of traction where they were able to break out of J- Japan's like orbit, so to speak, and become recognized internationally. Even though they'd been doing great things all along, it wasn't like this was the first thing that was you know that was truly worth noteworthy from them. Of course, no, it's true. I, it it did take time to to build that momentum to where it's certainly by this point, you know, Mononoke was like, Oh, you know, Miyazaki's directing another, another film. Cause I think the last movie he was involved in prior to this, correct me if I'm wrong here, uh, is whisper, maybe whisper of the heart. I think uh... he was, um, doing the, some writing on that, but I don't think he directed it. But by, by that point, you know, 97, 98, like, his films, the, the the Ghibli library was becoming more accessible due to anime's sort of um, international breakthrough as a marketable commodity. And yeah, like Miyazaki was all of a sudden, I think this sort of darling at like the, the is it Cannes, Cannes, Cannes Film Festival in <laughs> France? Cannes, like the, uh, the Cannes yes. Film Festival. Uh-huh. And at like Toronto and New York, like Mononoke went on this this big like film festival deal, like and so yeah, I think this movie's release and kind of the Miyazaki tour, uh, and like all the great people that worked on it and people animation buffs talking about his his work for so long, like and then Mononoke laid the groundwork I think for him to win the Oscar with Spirited Away and everyone is now, you know, by that point saying, like, oh, Miyazaki is this master, you know. I should add, but I, I've been I've been restraining myself from saying this, but apparently according to notes I have from Wikipedia, uh, which I strongly suspect you might have, be, have handy as well because of the accolades, but James Cameron cited uh, this film as an influence on Avatar. <laughs> it doesn't surprise me yeah. at all. And do you, know what, do you know what's hilarious? We're going to be talking about this a lot later, but I think that Cameron, like, Cameron did some great... I, I'm going to just segue onto Cameron very briefly. Like, he did some great films, like, in the 80s, for example, like Original Terminator, Aliens, and such, and everything, and all that. Uh, no, wait, Ridley Scott did it. Look, anyway, point being, Cameron, as of late, has been shit. And the problem with Cameron, as of late, is that he has no idea, like, how to do an actual script. And for all that he might cite Princess Mononoke as an influence on Avatar, 
he seems to have forgotten the core lesson that this film imparts. <laughs> because if there's one thing I can say about Avatar is that it was literally like watching a cartoon in every sense of the word, including how the villains were. Just put that in the back of your head, folks, for when we get to the point, you know, where we start talking about the themes of this film and the idea of nuance when it comes to the uh, concept of good versus evil. Indeed. Indeed. I can't wait to talk about that stuff. So uh, I will try to get through this quickly. Um, and like I said, we don't have to talk about like how awesome Toshio Suzuki is or like the filmography of Miyazaki because we've done that already. Just go, go back and listen to the Laputa podcast mm-hmm. and the Kaguya podcast. So uh, Miramax, who you may or may not know, Shadon. I know of them, yes. You know of Miramax. They are the folks who helped bring the movie over to Western audiences, to North America in particular, I believe, in the early 2000s. And so, you know, scum of the earth, Harvey Weinstein was uh, involved uh, as Miramax is his, you know, studio. And so you have this really fucking weird deal. And I tweeted about this because I was watching a documentary about, about this movie. And when it, like, premiered in New York... You know, you have Miyazaki getting out of his his car and walking into the theater and having to take a picture and shake hands with uh, Harvey Weinstein. It was fucking surreal to see that in 2019. I hope he watched it afterwards. Bizarre, totally bizarre. Um, another person he shook hands with in that scene, and you may or may not know this. I think I might gonna I, I'm gonna spring this on you as a surprise. At least I hope I am because I actually learned this for the first time this week looking into this movie. He shook hands with Neil Gaiman in that scene. Ooh! Do you know why? Because Neil Gaiman was uh, tasked, if I recall correctly, to do the script for this. He wrote the dub, and he did not admit to it on the record until this year, Gaiman. Because I, I remember reading about that, yeah. Yeah, he, he, his name got scrubbed in, in the way that, you know, people that deserve credit for group projects, mm. you know, often have their names scrubbed. But yeah, Gaiman uh, wrote the dub, wrote the script for it. Uh, the script was, uh, the dub rather, was directed by Jack Fletcher. I need to, before we talk about the plot of this movie, just take a minute here and talk about the dub. Hmm. May I, before we may I before we get oh, just point mm-hmm. out, like when you said about Neil Gaiman, like even if I knew very little about Gaiman, I've read some of his stuff like Neverwhere, for example, I can't think of anyone else offhand, with the possible exception of Terry Pratchett, um, who I would probably task to handle the adapted scripts of this film, or any Ghibli film for that matter. Because Gaiman has a very good understanding of a kind of magical whimsy, but also, you know, a, a world in which, you know, there is that kind of thing, but at the same time, a very real danger and threat. Like, where it's wondrous, yes. but it's not tame, so to speak. Yes, yes. Gaiman, um, Gaiman gets that, and so does Pratchett for that matter. So very few people would be up to the task of adapting this to begin with. So kudos, you know, to Miramax for putting him in charge of doing that. Less so for Weinstein being involved. But, yeah, fuck well, you, dude. I mean, you may have missed out the fact that there's also a, a tale about what happened when Weinstein wanted uh, cuts made to the film. Oh, no! <laughs> Dude, please tell the story. I was going to tell the story, but you you tell the story. All right. So, in what I think might have possibly been the most amazing, like, advanced call ever of, like, someone's shittiness, after Weinstein, like, you know, said he wanted to get the film edited down a little bit, uh, 
Miyazaki's staff sends him a katana with a message saying no cuts. Just to stick it, no, no. Yeah. <laughs> Said no cuts. Oh, no cuts. I, as, as a, I, I suppose, like, you know, I would have gone for an alternative, which is only one cut. I can certainly think of, uh, you know, <laughs> many reasons that you would have once done that to Weinstein in hindsight. I don't know, maybe, I personally, like, I can't translate Japanese. Uh, I probably never will be able to. But if I had to ask the guests, like, if I were looking at that note, I would have probably gone with, do not fuck with. You know? Yes. Like, yes. That, that's a, that is a statement. That is like, you know, we've made a thing, and we already know, like, you. well, to be fair, like, Harvey Weinstein having his thumbprints all over things is a, you know, a well-known quantity right now. Ugh. Yeah, so they probably had some understanding of what a fucking piece of shit he was, even just creatively. And good on them for, like, saying fuck you in a way that's just incredible. Like, the next time, you know, like, my fucking Uber delivery driver pisses me off because he (laughs) sends my food in cold, I'll tip him with a, you know, a fucking katana or something instead. (laughs) No ketchup. (laughs) Um, a broken bottle. I think a big part of the reason he did that, and I don't know how he feels about, about Weinstein, um, Maybe he didn't like him from the go, but um, I think a large part of why this was a thing was because, um, have you ever heard of Warriors of the Wind, Shadon? No. Okay, so um, the last kind of big to-do, I think, of bringing over one of his movies for American audiences, and this is... This is back in the day before like anime coming over here uncut and untouched was normal. Like mm. most people that were bringing it over were thinking like, oh man, like this animation is really great, but there's going to be either some stuff that's too violent or some stuff that's too Japanese, um, you know, for people to get and it's going to turn people off. So we need to like turn these three anime into Robotech to figure them <laughs> to make oh sure that people God. watch it. I, um, I, I just thought, I just had like this vision into an ultimate timeline where Harmony Gold were responsible for, you know, licensing Ghibli stuff. I threw up a little in my mouth, even just trying to comprehend that. Well, Carl Masek did. I don't know if, I think that was part of Streamline Pictures, um, but he, but Masek was involved with both Streamline Pictures and Harmony Gold in what capacity for each at what time I'm less sure about, but, but he's, He's the man uh, in both in in both of those things uh, that was responsible for, like he was doing the Robotech surgery uh, and making the Frankenstein monster, um, <laughs> and and he was doing the Laputa dub. So Warriors of the Wind, I think, also was a Streamline Pictures thing. I've done no research on Warriors of the Wind, but it was the attempt by folks over here to bring over Naushka. And it was cut and changed. And again, I don't know all the specifics of the changes because I've never wanted to seek out <laughs> Warriors of the Wind. Thankfully, when I was an anime fan, like at the time, uh, I-, I became um, into this stuff. You know, that practice was pretty much dying out and Naushka was available pretty shortly after I became a fan, I think, uh, in its original state. But... uh yeah, Warriors of the Wind uh, was the release of it over here, and it really pained Miyazaki that they cut up his movie, and he really didn't like it at all, yeah. the way it, it ended up. And so part of the deal, uh, Miramax distributing the movie, like he was pretty adamant about, like, I don't want you to change anything. And As it should be. I think Harvey was all like, what if we just did? And he was like, have oh, he said time. that many times in his fucking life, the <laughs> oh. scumbag. I know. 
I know. Um, okay, so the dub. I'll talk about the dub. Uh, I, I want to gush about the dub, but just a brief word about the script itself because you are so right about Gaiman and the way that, that he writes. Adapting this was just like, it feels like such a thing in his wheelhouse. And, and I mean, in that documentary, when he's meeting Miyazaki, you know, he's just gushing and saying like, ah, oh, your, your form is so beautiful. Uh, it's very sweet. But, um, you know, watching uh, watching the dub and then watching the uh, subtitled version, I haven't done enough research to know if the, the G-Kids release of the, the Blu-ray of uh, Mononoke has, like, dub titles. I know that was a problem for the Disney releases for a while. The differences between the dub and the sub are very minor, and I love all the changes that that Gaiman made and they're not substantial changes they're really changes of like just changing the expression to be more precise to English speaking audiences about a certain feelings the character has or certain intentions mm-hmm. more naturalistic yeah yep mm-hmm. yeah it's a really really good script and the dub listen you guys have heard me talk about dubs before Nothing makes me cringe like an like an anime dub. I never watch them uh, for currently airing stuff. I, I only ever seek out the uh, the subbed uh, versions, the original Japanese vocal track. Um, it's what I like. It's what I'm used to. It's what I think is I, I, just uh, questions of like fidelity aside hmm. or whatever or like this needs to bring its own like i just like the way it sounds i think i just think that most dubs I, as soon as i hear them i just go oh i just hate the way this sounds this does not appeal to me at all like the acting uh and a lot of times the scripts aren't so great they're just not my thing i don't enjoy them yeah this dub though shadon fucking great great and that's including the fact like this is also we mentioned in Kaguya, I, I believe, or possibly Lapita, about how Ghibli seems to attract um, like a level of voice acting talent that you would not expect for other animated works, certainly not Japanese ones that are adapted over here. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, for example, uh, although not one of the films we've covered in Ponyo, there is Liam Neeson. Mm-hmm. Actual film actors, like not people strictly known or typically known for voice acting, um, but instead those known for live action and often quite famous in the West. And I'm reading the list of uh, voice actors and actresses for the English dub of Monoke, and by God, there is some talent <laughs> in this. Holy by crap. God. Yeah, this this feels like they, this feels like they assembled, like, have you ever seen like a cowboy movie where they assemble the group to do a mission? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it feels like that. Like, you know, I feel like we should, have seven. A, yeah, we should have a roll call for them, I think. Mm-hmm. Totally. That, like, and this is uh, prior to the days where Disney wanted to, you know, is able to plunk down top dollar to get Christian Bale to do Howl. I'm sure Miramax had a ton of money they could throw at these people, but um, but it's the best cast, in my opinion, that's ever been assembled to do an anime dub. Ashtaka is voiced by Billy Crudup. San is voiced by Claire Danes. I'm trying to do this from memory. Um Jiko, voiced by Billy Bob Thornton. So good. <laughs> He's really good. And uh, in a little like documentary about the voice actors, um, you know, the director, Jack Fletcher, just said, like, 
you know, he's never done it before, but he had no trouble because he's a drummer and it's all about rhythm. Like he just mm-hmm. got into a rhythm and like crushed it, like did everything in as few takes as humanly possible because he just, it felt, it was just so natural to him to do it, which I thought was interesting. Lady Oboshi, voiced by Mini Driver. Yeah. Oh my Holy God. Holy shit. <laughs> it is, she is great. Absolutely fantastic in this role. Um, Mauro, San's mom, voiced by Jillian Anderson. Yep. And look, look, all right. In a lot of in all the roles I just talked about, I, I think while the dub is fantastic, I, I don't want to like throw any shade. But I'm just gonna tell you, I vastly prefer Jillian Anderson as Moro to the Seiyu, uh in in the Japanese version. I just do. And more on that note, do you know who uh, voices uh, Okoto? I, this is where I get my uh, John Carpenter's The Thing reference in for the second time. Keith motherfucking David. Hell. One of, one yes. of my favorite actors slash voice actors ever. He's incredible in everything he touches. He could literally be reading out the list of like safety instructions from the back of a tin of paint, and it would be interesting to listen to. I'll list off some stuff that I know just offhand that this guy's been, that you will know him from, folks. Uh, He was in Gargoyles as Goliath, for example. Mm -hmm. He was in um, The Thing, of course. Uh, He was also in uh, Mass Effect as Captain Anderson. He's done a million and one things, and there's not a damn thing that he has touched that he's not been great in. I mean, again, the save for for Okoto is fine, but give me a better cast for an ancient boar god uh, I'll I wait have one, no, I, have, I have one I have one and that would be James Earl Jones I mean they're, they're playing in the same sport there so yeah I, I will yes I will see that B- comparable that's it that's comparable. it comparable maybe not better but comparable oh and um, he also voiced the Arbiter in the Halo series which has just been relevant <laughs> again yeah. he's been around a bit and funnily enough the Arbiter is the best part of the Halo series so again no surprises there Oh, did I miss anyone? I'm trying to think. Um, I think I... Oh, uh, uh, Toki. Um, This is going to maybe sound weird if you haven't heard the dub, but Jada Pinkett Smith does Toki. And she's great. (laughs) She's fantastic. And has like a real reverence for the material, which I I really dig. The cast is great. The script is great. The acting. um, I just prefer it. I've only seen this movie subbed once, and that was for this podcast. I finally mm. had to break down and watch the Japanese track just because all the other 19 times I've seen this movie, I'm just like, yep, putting on the dub. It's just that good. And, uh, you know, I could see someone arguing like, oh, well, like, Crudup is kind of um, a little monotone for Ashtaka. But I disagree, and I think I don't think Ashtaka is a super emotional guy anyway, high and low. Um, he's not mm. an erratic fellow. And... Uh, I will definitely see that the um, the Seiyu who plays San, who I don't have in front of me, I, I think that she does outshine Claire Danes. I could, I could definitely see that one where you prefer the Seiyu because I think I w- I go that way as well. Not that again Claire Danes is bad. I think she does a really good job, but um, the lady who plays San is is excellent. But yeah, I just wanted to shout out that dub because if you haven't seen it, you should see it. It's excellent. It is excellent if you yeah, and you you know what you can give uh, yourself away. I think the mega, mega elk, elk right 
Um, <laughs> if, you, if you're talking about the mega elk and you only call it the deer god, then you've only seen the sub. The, the dub only refers to him as the spirit of the forest. Uh, <laughs> never refers to him as the deer god. I love this yeah. movie's dub so much. I mean, if there's anything that we've tried to impress on you here, folks, is just that, like a lot of Ghibli films, like even even when the film is complete technically, and then it's been, you know, taken elsewhere and given a, a treatment or a polish to uh, help it appeal to a different audience, it's still being treated with love and respect. And that's what I think, like, is their work ethic in general, apart from being meticulous, of course. Mm-hmm. There's a you can clearly see like where like blood, sweat, and tears went into each part of the film that or of the films that we've covered and Monoke is certainly no exception there's not part of this film like in terms of its like look its animation its music character design script dub sub etc that doesn't feel like you know that someone didn't care about it. like they definitely like poured their heart and soul into it totally one last thing about the um non-plot well i say one last thing i'll probably sprinkle things in here and there but this just came to me um hearing your summation. I think a lot of people will mistakenly think that Miyazaki wanted to like do Naushka over again or like do a retread of Naushka. And so then he came up with this movie, right? But actually the way uh, he tells it and you're feel, feel free to disbelieve him, I guess if you, if you want to, but um, he actually came up with the idea for both at the same time before either one was actually made into a movie. He was uh, living in L.A. in the 80s, working on this co-production. The doc that I was watching didn't even say what the title was, because maybe it didn't make it to air, maybe it just wasn't worth mentioning, but um, he was helping with this animated co-pro, and he just disagreed with the producer so strongly that he, while he was there, he just never put his heart into it. I think he left even before the production was uh, was either stopped or complete or whatever, but um, during the time he was working on it, he would spend all his time thinking about his own ideas, and that's where he came up with the idea for Naushka and things like Laputa and uh, Princess Mononoke. So you kind of envisioned them, at least in their initial forms, concurrently. But yeah, okay, are you ready to like talk about the talk about the movie? Hell yeah. Yeah, let's, let's talk about, about the film. Let, let, let's talk about all the f- wonderful things they smell about. It's like cycles of hatred and, you know, the, the corruption of the land and, you know, mankind's encroachment on nature and the destruction of life as we know it. All these wonderful things. Let's go! And yet... And yet the movie is not like one that will leave you in despair. This is At true. At least that's not what it what it wants to do. Mm, I agree. Well, why don't you start us off, buddy? I feel like I've been hogging hogging the mic. All right. So I'm gonna assume that you've seen the film. I'm not gonna go into a lengthy plot summary. No. Um because again, like with every other Ghibli film we've covered thus far. Turn the fucking podcast off and go watch it if you've not seen it already. Watch this movie. <laughs> that's the that's the truth of it. And I'd rather you go in blind rather than having it spoiled for you. But where appropriate, I will give context. And I suppose one thing I want to note right off the bat is just to reiterate a point I made previously about this film is probably the most violent Ghibli film I've seen thus far. And it's violence and also the very disgusting and almost like body horror elements to various parts of it. 
they give it a much, much more visceral feel like than, say, Laputa or Kaguya did. Now, they're not in there, of course, just for the sake of it. They actually serve a purpose. But I can't stress enough, like, how powerful it is to watch this film and see, like, the land dying as the gods die out in front of them, mm-hmm. like, where the corruption spreads from them. And the land just turns black and, like, withers away. The colour scheming in this film is fantastic, and it's a particularly noteworthy touch when you look at Iron Town, because Iron Town, despite its name, is not made entirely of iron, it's made of wood, but look at the colour grading all of it. That place is dead. When yeah. I say dead, as in, like, you know, the wooden, like, uh, walls of it and fortresses and uh, such like that, they're, they're all coloured in, like, this coal-like grayscale mm-hmm. that matches the way the, the diseased ground looks elsewhere. And it's just... It's stunning to me to look at, like, the the rich colour palette of this film and, like, then also just be revulsed by everything I'm seeing on screen. Like, where people's limbs fucking fly off. You can't do that in a Ghibli film. I thought Ghibli films were, like, pleasant and charming and not about mindless violence. And, oh. <laughs> I haven't seen Grave of the Flyerflies, by the way. Well, just but, be- right, right. Um, oh, so I'm glad you brought this up. I actually have a thing that I wanted to say about this. Um, if I may st- steal the mic from you again after I've just man. given it to you. So um, while Miyazaki was touring um, at the various film festivals uh, in the West, a lot of people had this comment, right? A lot of people asked him the question like, you know, how did kids take to this movie in Japan? Like, why are you making this movie now? Or this movie sure is not aimed at kids, is it? You know, is this what you're going to do now, make animations for adults? And he had a comment that's not directly related to all those questions, but I think I related it. So when he's in Toronto um, at, like, the North American premiere of the movie, he says, he's like, I hope you all enjoy this movie. Um, I made it uh, disregarding all the rules of entertainment. I think there's a lot of things he could mean when he says that, but I think here's some of what he might mean. I think he wants us to, and he said this in a different interview, like view this movie um, in the context of the entire Ghibli catalog, where you look at most other Ghibli works, as you mentioned, they're aimed to support children, to encourage them, to lift them up. They're very cozy. Yeah. Just say, you know, you may have some, some problems, but things are going to be okay. And yes, cozy, comforting, but Miyazaki mm-hmm. himself has a, a healthy respect for the minds of children. In fact, he said that kids more than adults seemed way more comfortable with the fact that there's no clear sort of villain in this movie, that Lady Eboshi is not the bad guy, right? She's mm. she's not um, a villainous character, that adults often seem to need clear lines, black and white, white hat, black hat, you know, but kids sort of don't need that. Like, that they know more to reality. There's more nuance to it, yeah. Than that, right? And given the reality that they encounter, that the sort of previous Ghibli films alone aren't enough, kids immediately comprehend these really big problems, right, about the world. Like, uh, where are we heading as Mm -hmm. a species? Like, are human beings doing the right thing for ourselves, Mm -hmm. for the planet? Um and Miyazaki said, like, unless Ghibli talks about it directly to them, if we only give them the warm blanket, 
then we to them are going to seem sort of hollow and facile. We're not really facing or dressing their concerns. And he, this was like, blew me away when he said this thing that we had to make this movie or forfeit the right to make more. I was like, wow. <laughs> but that is, yeah. You know why? Like, when you put it in context like that, I mean, it's easy for us to now watch this film and look back on it and think, so, well, that's another crown, uh, sorry, another jewel in the crown of uh, Ghibli, you know? They docks out of the park again. Are you even surprised? But it is certainly a departure from what we've seen elsewhere. I mean, let's, I mean, just to speak of Laputer, just to keep it in the, uh, the confines of, like, the films we've covered that came prior to this one, like, Laputer had its moments of darkness, but it was certainly much more of a, like, a rollicking, like, Jules Verne adventure story more than anything else, mm-hmm. as opposed to what this film is, which is, I would almost call it, like, apocalyptic in nature, and yet mm. also about rebirth as well. I certainly do agree that, like, while I obviously don't think, like, you know, wanton violence and such should be in children's material just willy-nilly. I mean, I wouldn't, for example, show, like, uh, Commando or Predator to uh, a kid. Commando, the greatest anime ever made. (laughs) Yes, thank you. I'm glad you agree. Um, I wouldn't do that. But I also would, like, show show exclusively material age-dependent, of course. I certainly wouldn't show, like, a two-year-old, even, like, some slightly more edgy stuff, if you get my mean. Mm -hmm. But... I wouldn't also then, like, you know, closet them away from the darker aspects of human nature as shown through things like violence and such, and death in particular. Because one of the more challenging things that children will learn as they grow up is that things do pass on. More often than not, it will be the loss of a family pet, first and foremost. So you can imagine, like, you know, when you see, admittedly, these incredibly vicious wolves and they're dying en masse... And all the boars and all that, and you're like, mm-hmm. "Holy shit!" And they did, and they don't come back; they're gone. You know, they allowing a little bit of darkness though makes it easier to see the light at the end and to want for a you know a better outcome for our heroes. And having it just be sugar coated, where it's just simply a shouting match rather than the actual war that they're involved in which is to say the gods the humans and the interpersonal like conflicts between humans and humans and gods and gods in this i i think that that definitely gives the film its much needed edge to make the point it wants to make about hatred and institutionalized violence and you know like what we pass on to our children in terms of like despising out groups and you know for past sins quote unquote Mm mm-hmm uh, which is certainly something you would want to be caught privy of, like when you, oh sorry, knowledgeable of, when you yourself are raising children. So yeah, I'm very glad that Miyazaki was willing to make that like decision to take a chance, basically. Even in a, a work that fails, I'll always at least admire a creator for trying, mm-hmm. as opposed to playing it safe. So good on him for doing that, and it certainly paid massive dividends with the quality of the work in question once it came out. Yeah. Yeah, the stakes certainly feel higher than they've ever felt for for a Ghibli movie. Oh, you mean like the end of all life as we know it? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Jesus Christ, like, I mean... Okay, it basically is what happens if you just... It just looks like, you know, someone spilled a giant, like, tanker of glue all over the landscape, you know. Uh, or, you know, you could say it's maybe not necessarily, you know, Ghibli's adaptation of Ferngully, but rather The Blob. The Blob. <laughs> Yeah, the blob. the blob. I'm not kidding. Yeah, the blob. You could say that, certainly, but... It's a like, you, best you character see the... in Clay Fighter, by the way, the blob. <laughs> oh, God. 
real but thing. But you can, you can like. You can like see what happens at the end, like when you, the land just withers away and just turns into so much dust and like death, and then all the people who are swallowed up by as well who don't come back, they are gone. And you can infer from mm. that, oh god, everything everywhere is dead. It's just going to take a little bit of time, but that's the end of it. Holy shit! So yeah, like, but then like that makes the triumph in the end all the sweeter when they finally you know return the head back to you know the the forest spirit. Yeah, and I I don't want to falsely sell the movie as having a happy ending because I don't necessarily think everyone gets what they want most in the world, but I think but I think yes, there is a sort of triumph over the apocalypse that all the characters are staring directly into. Yeah, I wouldn't call it a happy ending, as you say, but what I would call it is a positive ending. Yep, definitely hopeful. Which is mm-hmm. not, not quite the same thing, but certainly in the same kind of, like, there's going to be a sense of progress. Like, yeah. things can change. And I'm going to discuss that in much greater detail when we get to the ending in particular, and yeah. how the status quo is set up for the characters after everything resolves. Yeah, and I think the ending is, is extremely important. Oh, yes. Um, for, like, for instance, the fact that San and Ashtaka don't end up together quote unquote you know what i mean like go off and live together as uh married people mm-hmm. in one place or the other i think having ashtaka move forward as a person in between iron town and the forest uh actually kind of seals the deal on his character being one of the most relevant anime protagonists that I've ever seen. He he is the he's the peacemaker. Or what well, one of the peacemakers, the other being San, I would argue, but we'll get and to he, her. Oh, and he represents no, I don't want to use all my bullets right away, but I think he represents the situation for that that we have to deal with as twenty first century human beings in a, a really specific way, in an incredible way. All right, I'll pass the book over to you, Doc, to continue on the next point, because I've, I've still got plenty more to say, like, about the main conflicts of the film, but I don't want to... I feel like I want to save that for, mm-hmm. for a little later in the podcast. Okay. Well, here, here's a point that I what, that I was struck by the last couple times I watched the movie. This is definitely, as you say, an apocalyptic film, and it's not a local tragedy. It's not some kind of local disaster. You could, I think that there's a way to watch it, and I probably watched it a bunch of times, kind of thinking that it was that. Like, oh, it's just for this little part of the world, right? The little um, stretch I, of land. Yeah. On, on the rewatch I did uh, last week in preparation for this, my impression, like, if I were to, like, you know, assume the out, the horrific, like, you know, bad ending outcome that Ashtaka and San are killed by, you know, the spreading of the Nightcrawler's, like, you know, essence, so to speak, mm-hmm. that it would never stop. That I did not feel it would just simply come to an end. I figured it would. That would be the end of all life on the earth as we knew it. Mm-hmm. And I just and I also don't mean the not just the nightcrawler, um, dying and mm. the the goo <laughs> that's threatening to kill everyone. But I mean everything leading up to that, like all the 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 death, uh, human death, the death of the forest, the old gods dying out, the fact that you have beings that have existed since the dawn of time Mm -hmm. but you also have a very real like in play scenario where the world could end 
it really like I don't. It's but so I think, fucking I think, awesome because yeah. like yeah, I think <laughs> for like I think for like the gods, for example, like you you when you hear the word god, you perceive it uh, that like as some kind of like omnipotent like everlasting entity. But even like they are vulnerable in this, vulnerable to gunfire of all things. Now, granted, God in like Judeo-Christian circles means a different thing than it would in Japanese ones, for example. Totally, totally. So, don't take like the word necessarily to be ubiquitous in terms of like the inferences you can make from it. But nonetheless, you still would think like that they would not go down so easily. But everything and everyone in this film is vulnerable and fragile. Yes. So this is it's a very interesting depiction of fragility because you would think that if the conditions of the planet were such that things could thrive on it that or live on it that have lived since it began it's it must be doing pretty well right if if mm. <laughs> these beings that have lived since the dawn of time are still around then there must be something that's still kind of present from old earth some quality of the planet like that they are still able to to live they haven't all they haven't all died off so it must be doing okay like just the fact that there's stuff from the beginning meeting stuff that is the end of the world the world is on like a knife edge it's so precarious because you know the deer god forest is this like um, incredible place that looks untouched by human beings and yet Mm -hmm. it it lives but with a with a with a little push a little gust of wind it could all go away it could all be destroyed all the old gods could be they're really as you said threatened and and again it's not just in this one this one like little area like i think the movie has several different lines and scenes to emphasize like no it's the whole world that is going to hell pretty much right like for instance, I mean, the opening scene of the movie, Nago showing up in the Amishi village. They are a tribe that is so far away from the rest of civilization, so hidden yeah. from everyone. They they shouldn't oh, be in the movie. Regular, it's just a regular Wednesday morning and, you know, he just rocks right. up, hung over, still pissed out of his face. You know, he's rolled around in some, like, you know, ancient evil corruption, and now he's wrecking the place. He's got no domestic responsibility. I mean, Nago, come pig. on. Come Literally. on. Literally. Come on, dude. Show some... Clean, show, clean yourself up. Go to decorum. rehab. <laughs> Go to rehab. God, God damn it. <laughs> to be uh-huh. fair, I've looked like, I've looked, I've looked like, uh, Gar- like Morrow has, you know, a couple of times after I've woken up on a night out. Whoops. That's oh. what tequila will do to you. Yeah. Yikes. But yeah, so like they Nago shows up there, right? And mm-hmm. like this far out of the way place that has been able to for five hundred years hide away from the Emperor, from humanity, is pulled into this conflict because it's spreading its tendrils so far out. I mean, the you know, the message that you even as far away as you are from the source of the problem, it's still going to affect you and you mm-hmm. should probably deal with it. I wonder if that could possibly be relevant in some way to modern times. Nah, I don't buy it. Yeah. Not possible. No. Yeah. Uh, but no, joking aside, like, I really should address straight on because the actual issue itself should be addressed straight on. I have to wonder if Miyazaki, like, you know, if he just is in the know, so to speak, like, if he's got a hotline to mm. a higher, higher presence that, like, 
says, hey, you know what, like, in your own way, you might want to warn people, because this is one of those films that actually has only gotten more relevant with time, thanks yep. to our old, you know, buddy and mine, Captain Planet villain that is climate change. Yeah. So, I mean, do I need to bring up, for example, what's been happening with the Amazon, you know, since that fuckwit Bolsonaro got into power? And he decided, you know, like, mm. he, you know, be a lumberjack and he's okay. Wanker. Um, no, I probably don't. You probably know that better than I do. But it's, I mean, it's a lesson that's only got more relevant as time yep. has gone on. And as I say, like, for all that, you know, we might think our ecosystem is extremely resilient as, you know, embodied by the gods of Mononoke, they can die. And what I should yeah. stress as well, by the way, that I think is really, really crucial to, like, understanding the sense of vulnerability is that, Again, if I bring up the idea of killing a god in general, if I said to you, you could do it just by shooting them, I think that like in our collective like headcanon of what that term means, and again, I'm probably leaning too into the Western interpretation of it, just hold with me on this. Like, if you were to read into that, you'd probably think, no, that that don't make no sense. Like, it's a god. You can't shoot a god dead. Bit daft that, isn't it? But no, even like like we don't need anything like exceptional or unusual like magic or some shit to do awful awful things to these creatures and to the environment we only need technology utilized in ignorance or indeed out of spite noting scenes in the movie that like emphasize the fact that this is not a local conflict like when jiko and ashtaka camp right and billy bob thornton has a conversation with billy crudup over a steaming bowl of rice, you know, they're camping out and Jiko's like, hey man, the last time I passed through here, this was a thriving village. There were kids running around. It was green. Everybody's dead now. You know, you're cursed. You're our miscursed, but guess what? The whole damn world is cursed. And yep. uh, there's angry ghosts all around us. Like the world is fucked. And the sort of wise old rifleman, uh, Osa, the, the leper, he says the same thing when talking to Ashtaka, that uh, you know he has a disease, but also the world is cursed. Um, mm -hmm. But he also says people, human beings, uh, f continue to find the strength to live in a in a cursed world, and that's where uh, the movie will definitely end up. Mm -hmm. If I may make a very brief point, by the way, in, in how this story is constructed, that I think is important. Yeah. So, oftentimes, like. We're going to talk more in a bit, I presume, about the nuance to which, you know, the characters in this film, like the sides and such and the factions, none of them are evil per se. And I'll gain sound a bit, but what I really want to know ahead of time is that, to my memory, it's not established in the film who fired first, so to speak. Well, it's now, de you might... definitely, Sorry, definitely Iron Town Eboshi showed up, you know what I mean? But who killed who first? So, like, who shed first blood? Simply turning up to me doesn't feel like it's sufficient so to speak to spark off a conflict although well, so, certainly it's like so the iron town was already there but they say we couldn't get at the iron under the mountain until mm -hmm. lady aboshi showed up with her guns and fire and we killed the forest like we we chopped down all the trees and burned away the forest to get the iron and they are the ones who shot nago you know that's how he turned into a demon um mm -hmm. i think that it might not have been just one battle. It might have been several over time. But Aboshi fired on the boars first. Right, okay. Because um, I was in the impression that it wasn't made it very like entirely explicit who shot first. 
Because the point I was going to make was that I think it doesn't matter as much to no that that that's butt. exactly yeah. well that well that's it though like it not being mentioned like you would think in a lot of stories it would be crucial that you make that very very explicit what was the inciting incident what was that specific moment in time mm-hmm. but the thing that I really admire about Monoke's examination of this conflict is that it doesn't fucking matter who fired first. You're just doing it now. It's just happening. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. there are reasons that they have, but the reasons are built on top of, like, counter-reasons, like, totally. and responses and rebuttals. How many conflicts can you and I name in real life, Doc, that feel like or actually have been going on for centuries to modern day based on ancient, like, you know, grievances? Yeah. I'm not going to name any in specific so as not to devolve this into being all, like, political. But I mean, to say, like... No politics and animation on no uh, no um, what was i thinking? dare god <laughs> um but i mean to say like you know the point of the film amongst others is that you know s- just stop like it doesn't matter like the conflicts like in itself is the reason like it's a self-perpetuating thing mm-hmm. it is the reason for its own existence now rather than anything that we like living like you know modern day people have to deal with or, like, you know, are still slicing by, like, it's our ancestors. And I'm not saying, you know, you just give up your grievances necessarily, but, like, you might want to start working towards de-escalating them rather than just perpetuating them on and on and on to pour water onto the fire rather than petrol. And you might be like, ah, oh, Eboshi, you know, they showed up and tried to take the home of of the forest gods, and they, uh, you know, she fired at, at Nago and turned him into a demon, and that's what set it off, and she's the ultimate villain. And, and the bad one, and is do, starting the bad and the bad things. But, like, A, see everything that you said. B, mm-hmm. she's trying to carve out a home for a group of people that the world has rejected and treats as garbage, like lepers and also brothel workers. Mm. Like, she wants to make a safe haven for these men and women, and needs unfortunately the world we live in she needs money and goods to barter and so she she feels like she has to have this iron to do it and she has good reasons for doing what she's doing yeah indeed also to make the weapons with which she defends herself because mm-hmm. but both she's not only fighting the god she's fighting like uh the samurai as well yes yep and the samurai's reasons fighting her are even less well developed than they the are yeah previously, <laughs> which again only goes to serve the point by the way, the gods are also in on this because they themselves have their own tribal lines that only seem like they exist because that's how it's always been. That they've always had this kind of conflict going on, or this pecking order. Mm-hmm. And with things being shaken up a little bit, like, for example, the ape tribe getting on it, they now feel they have, like, the, you know, position and the strength to start saying to those, hey, you know, that kid there? That kid <laughs> right there. Yeah? Looks like a chicken nugget to me. I reckon I'll take a bite out of that. You know? scrumptious anyone got i mean you know what like i'm i'm really glad at least you know that we the apes from uh stanley kubrick's 2001 got <laughs> after, after they you know did their inaugural uh thing with the monolith and throwing the bone around good for them good for them i say oh man um all right so yeah you're right and this is probably a good time today for me to redress because i'm gonna be honest i do have some issues with the film not major ones. Don't, you know, please don't, like, you know, tie me up and throw me into the ocean, like, you know, with a con- pair of concrete shoes. 
Don't do that just yet. Toki will pour boiling oil on you. Like she oh, did the great. samurai. <laughs> well, well, at least I'll be exfoliated. I'll have clear skin for days. So, um, I do have, as I say, some mild complaints. Complaints, quote unquote, I suppose. Just Let's just call them observations at the moment, and then I'll let you all be the judge after the fact about this film. I wouldn't take them like as me, like, hating on the film, but I'm just going to get this first one out there that you and I have actually discussed off cast, Doc, and I'm going to offer this more as a point of discussion. So here's the thing, right? I've talked about nuance when it comes to the like the idea of good versus evil in this film, because if I just, just to restate something that I think you may not know as part of writing 101, characters are never evil simply because, unless you're literally writing Satan. But even then, Satan, like, you know, was jealous of God's, like, power and all that. So even, even in something like that, which, you know, you point to saying he's like the embodiment of all evil, well, he has a logic and a reason behind it. And that applies to a lot of, like, villains, if you really do think about it. They're doing what they think is right. It's just that, you know, our modern consensus of, like, morals and ethics suggests, you know, hey, maybe don't fucking do that. That's the first point, in that no one is what I would call, like, surface-level evil in this film. Not even necessarily the monk, uh, Jago, although he himself is a... Uh, sorry, Jigo, although he himself is a, uh, a bit of a prick, let's be honest. A little I bit. mean, a little bit. I mean... You know, do you want to give the head back so we can, like, prevent the end of the world? Nah. <laughs> nah. The sun's almost up. We're golden. Come on. No refunds, bitch. <laughs> the emperor. I know. That that was totally a line from the uh, the dub, by the way, even though I haven't seen it. <laughs> <laughs> Here's the thing about Iboshi. Like, you yourself said that she's carving out a home for these outcast people, uh, the marginalized, you know, such as the lepers and the brothel workers. Now, my reading of this film initially was that in some way, you could have taken the lepers as a kind of, you know, indictment against nature because of how cruel and unjust it can be to certain people, how unfair it can be. Mm. I mean, I don't know if you know, but leprosy is fucking horrific. <laughs> I mean, yes. this, ain't, this ain't no eczema shit that you can clear up by going to the body shop and buying yourself a nice facial cream that's scented with fucking lavender. You know? Mm-hmm. It's the wretchedest shit. And... That, to me, like, gels with the fact that, like, Iboshi might have a little bit more venom inside of her regarding fighting back against the forces of nature as represented by the gods because she is caring for people whom nature has been very unjustly cruel to for basically no reason. So I like that. I yeah. like the fact that the, the lepers are in there for that reason. Just to compliment what you're saying, like, the, the brothel worker ladies are people that uh, humans have been incredibly unfair and unjust to and i have to think that like her kind of crusade in that area is just speculation on my part that but that comes from some kind of trauma she herself has suffered maybe she herself was one in the past yeah right and so she has grudges against everyone nature and and human but no sorry i didn't mean to interrupt you i just wanted to Um, well no your your instruction was actually quite pertinent there because that was the point i was going to make next which is that I can't help but wonder how to feel about the element of the brothel workers being there. Not because the brothel workers, by the way. I hope that's been clear from all the stuff that I've covered over like the what years. What you got against brothel workers, Shadon? <laughs> the fact that they don't call me back. <laughs> <laughs> oh, anyway. Come on, um, Toki. Div- divorce. Uh, what's his name? Kurt. Why can I not remember his name? Are you about to quote... <laughs> No, you you can fuck off mentioning that show if that's what you're about to mention. No, no, Toki oh, from oh. uh, Princess Faranoke, the the Jada Pinkett Smith voiced kind of the oh. main lady. 
but then the oh, pink yeah, sure. uh, yeah. kimono. Oh yeah, the, the, the one constantly beating yeah, up Kuroku, on her husband. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. yes, you're right, you're right. But here's the thing, right? I'm of two minds this, because on the one hand, I do agree with you that, you know, it might be a bit too simplistic that if it was, if that wasn't there, because then it points out that the humans are just as bad as well. Because, believe it or not, like, my opinion on sex work is legalize the fuck out of it, and the bad shit that happens that is associated with it is, are all problems of, like, our own creation, like, you know, pimps, abuse, violence, police violence, blah, 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 blah. And certainly we get the impression in the film itself that the brothel workers that Eboshi has released and saved, uh, they were subject to such a system where they were abused and exploited uh, by, you know, pimps and such, and an unfair social system. So, on the one hand, I appreciate that it diversifies Eboshi's, like, viewpoint so that, you know, it's not just her hating on uh, the forces of nature, but also that people of her own species and her own kind are also fighting against her, and she's fighting back against them for the evils that we inflict on each other. That's good. But then I also do think to myself that it kind of undercuts her, like, feeling a little bit of how she, like, is fighting back against the forces of nature when one of the stated reasons that she's trying to carve out Iron Towns as a safe space is the fault of other humans, as opposed to, say, something else. I've had a I've had a fondness because you and I discussed this off cast actually after I finished watching it, and I'm gonna go with your side of it, um, which is to say that I think it's fine the way it is, but I do wonder, like you know, if perhaps maybe in, as I'm often very fond of saying, maybe that could have been addressed as a a, a point in which one of the characters would bring up. Maybe Ashtaker himself would be like, you know, we're only making pro- more problems for ourselves by doing this you're solving a problem that humanity has created and maybe we should like try and figure out how to stop that to begin with rather than just you know continually putting our own fires out maybe it's something that i feel could have been expanded on a little bit to give it more bite i think it certainly works fine as it does right now don't get me wrong yeah that might have taken the spotlight away from the you know humans versus nature like the central kind of conflict undergirding the the big battle and everything. So, and yeah, I just, I don't know that it matters all that much. Um, I mean, maybe it like, it does adding to like the nuance of Eboshi's character and making her not um, villainous, you know, but like she's trying to, trying to solve a human problem by like fucking over the forest and animals. And they are entities that deserve, dignity and respect also at the end of the movie i think she sees like okay we're gonna start all over and do something do something better here she realizes after yeah. she was saved by san that hey we need to do we, we need to build a place that doesn't exploit nature or people I, I think from what you're saying there doc like i think it's something that we should really take away is that while I did describe the way Irontown looks before as incredibly bleak and, like, industrial, like, even in the organic materials that are used there, such as the wood looking like they're still, like, forged from metal, like, being very cold and grayscale, the idea of Irontown is a noble one. It's just not been executed entirely perfectly, shall we say. Thanks, Jigo. Yeah, thanks a fucking bunch, you prick. In, in bed with Lord Asano and the samurai. Uh... The fucking samurai. So yeah, I, I only bring that up just because I think to myself, like, you know, it's fine as is, but I wonder if it could have been sharpened up a little bit. 
And I suppose that for the sake of getting it out of the way, so that way I can then, uh, and these other two complaints I have, I'll get these out of the way now so then I can spend the rest of it gushing about yeah. the film because okay. there's so much of it to love. I think the film has a bit of a pacing problem. Now, when I say that, I found it difficult at times when I was watching the film to try and get a grasp of what Ashitaka's objective was. Now, you might say, well, his objective was to find Lady Eboshi, but my answer to that is then, to do what? Like... They're still fighting. Like it's not like what is his over, like what is his end game here in fighting? At what her? point in the movie? Uh, I think that was around like the time in which um, God, I'm trying to even place it. I'm finding difficulty. Like in, I think it's after the point in which he separates from San and goes back to Irontown briefly and tries to find her. Oh right. So why is he looking for her um, specifically? Yeah, because um, the because he wants to tell her, hey, Irontown is being. It's under siege by the samurai. You need to go back and protect your women and not worry about killing the deer god. Hmm. I suppose. Um, oh, that's I definitely the, right. Like, yeah, so that's when he he runs into her in the forest and he hops off the wolf and that's what he tells her. And she, and she tells him like, oh, so you want me to spare the deer god but kill the samurai? And he's like, I want everyone to live together and work this shit out in harmony, actually. Yeah, it feels like he's doing, I suppose, too much firefighting rather mm. than that. I think is the way I would describe it, and maybe indeed that's the point that he only can, you know, do so much as a single individual. You know, certainly difficult for groups of people to try and change people, other people's ideas, and he does in the end. Mm-hmm. But I think for me, like I felt at times, like it, it I didn't have quite a, gr- a firm grasp on what the end game was here. Like it felt like he was flying very by the seat of his pants, and I'm not talking in terms of like. Well, not so much like the, as intended by the story, but rather that what's going like what is exactly is the end goal here? What exactly are we trying to do and accomplish? Now, that is just entirely my feeling. I should stress, and it only like reared its head for moments at a time, like throughout the midpoint. All I can say is hard disagree because <laughs> hey, because I love I love the way the movie's paced. Like again, I I find it to be like the most watchable of movies. Mm. Well, maybe pacing is the wrong word, so it's more just having a sense of like what the current, like what everyone wants at the moment. Mm. Okay. And again, maybe I'm maybe the point is the fact that no one knows what they want because they're all just too stuck up their own asses to like you know realize maybe we shouldn't be fighting each other anymore for other pointless shit. Maybe that is the point. Ashtaka, I think, is the one, and maybe San at times. Like Ashtaka, I think, after he gets kicked out of the Wolf Tribe cave. Hmm. and kind of has, like I mentioned earlier, a little bit of a crossroads where it's a great scene, by the way, where he's wandering through and a storm kind of quickly comes on him and it's raining and it's very gray and he's kind of looking down while slowly riding Yakul. Uh, and then he looks up and he sees uh, this point where at the top of the hill, a storm is broken. It's sunny. It's clear. If you go to the top of the hill, you could see. And then I think he remembers what he told Lady Eboshi and what the elder of his village told him. He's here to see with eyes unclouded. He, he could be upset at both groups, but that doesn't mean that he should not empathize with and try his best to save as much as possible both groups. Because then immediately mm. he hears an explosion and thinks, it's San, but sees it's Irontown. Uh, and we know at that point in the film, he's very sort of opposed to the ideals of Iboshi, but he goes to Irontown anyway because there's people yeah. there that need saving. 
Yeah. You're in, you're definitely not wrong here, Doc, about everything you're saying. I can only really speak to how I felt. And sure. I will just point out as well again, folks, like I'm no definitive authority on, well, anything really, except for Old Spice. Like I love rubbing <laughs> that shit into my fucking scalp. But anyway, no, Old Spice, you know, uh, product placement in you this and podcast Terry aside. <laughs> oh, we, he's, he's a good lad. Uh, but um, product placement in this podcast aside, the point um, for me is like the final point I'll make is one that, again, I have discussed with you off cast. Okay. And funnily enough, there's actually evidence of this being a thing that Ghibli themselves were aware of, which I've read on the Wikipedia page for Mononoke. Uh, so, here's the thing. This film is called Princess Mononoke. But for me, it's not really so much about her as I would expect. I mean, you and I actually had this very discussion, believe it or not, when we were discussing Princess Kaguya, how it made more sense for it to be called The Tale of Princess Kaguya as opposed to The the Woodcutter. Whereas we have the opposite issue here, where my feeling is that it probably should be called The Tale of Prince Ashikata. And would you believe it, they actually had a discussion about that in Studio Ghibli, about naming it one way or the other. I'm going to actually find it here. Yeah, it says here, uh, it was ultimately chosen translated as Prince Mononoke. Uh, Miyazaki had actually preferred Legend of Ashitaka as the title. But in the end, they went with Princess Mononoke. Because Ashisaka, like, is the he is the like the audience character, like proxy character in many ways. Like, he serves as you know classic case of hey, I'm leaving my village, I'm going to go elsewhere, and he fulfills that very efficient narrative function of being someone who doesn't know about the wider world. So when things are explained to him, we learn about them as well. Mm-hmm. That kind of like very classical organic storytelling. Now, that of itself doesn't mean that he needs to be the focus of the film, but he's certainly the one who's got the most agency in it, in my opinion. And he's the one who actually contributes to solving the problem in the end, which, by the way, if you think about it, is actually very, very chilling because it takes an outside force to stop this conflict from happening. Mm-hmm. Does that not actually scare you a little bit? <sighs> that there's no, like, internal agent, like, that actually breaks out of the cycle and it takes an outside event or person to solve it? That's actually Maybe. quite. Yeah. That's actually quite grim when you think about it. And I feel bad for bringing that up. <laughs> what the fuck. Well, uh, but anyway, um, so my my issue is that I felt like San for a lot of the film, and this was like something I felt even when I watched it in that group watch, and then uh, that I mentioned before in the club, and I felt it again, although to a lesser extent. I felt like she had l- not enough to do, so to speak. The thing I think I've realized about it is that she, while she is very explicitly through being a human, like a bridge, much as Ashitaka is a bridge in his own right, she leans too far into the nature side of things to feel truly distinct from the wolves and have, like, you know, a conflict of perspective with them. That does change throughout the film, of course. But throughout much of it, like, I think she either gets knocked out or she's, like, taken out of fights or she is just fighting, she doesn't have an end goal in mind to change the conflict until Ashitaka, like, gives it to her. Now, am I complaining, like, oh, the man came in and gave the woman a, pos- a position on life? <laughs> no, I'm not doing that. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not even going... I mean, I've said some stupid shit in my time on this podcast, but even I'm not that dumb to make that point. 
But nonetheless, again, this feels more like a sentiment rather than something I can, like, objectively point to, like, oh, I mean, I'm certainly not going to go so far as say, well, uh, in this particular film, that she had about 20 minutes of affirmative action, whereas Ajitaka actually had 50. Now, does that seem a bit imbalanced to you based on the name of this film? I tell you, I made this pie chart. And also my accent was changing. Something <laughs> all the way say, thank you, like, early 20th century politician of some sort. <laughs> I wish we could go back to that right now, but that's a different discussion for a different time. Anyway, so yeah, this just again feels like a kind of feeling to me that it doesn't feel like her film so much. Now, I'll grant you, uh, she is certainly the most recognizable character from the film. Like, if I asked, if I, like, uh, you know, like, showed people pictures of characters from the film and said, which one do you recognize the most? They point to her immediately. Hell, of, of all the Ghibli films I've seen, I think the for, well, obviously for many reasons, but certainly just because of the visual appeal, I've seen Mononoke cosplayed the most, mm. as in the character. Mm-hmm. But yeah, again, I can only speak to this kind of sentiment um, or sense of ennui that I thought, it's called Princess Mononoke, but it doesn't necessarily feel it's about entirely about her or about her sufficiently. Well, she's not the main perspective that we see the world through as you say but she is an extremely important character with oh important, yes yes important implications for the entire world and makes a lot of just in fact i think she's with ashtaka um a very little amount of the movie like i think a lot of times she's doing her own thing um mm. with her family i mean i don't i don't necessarily think she needs a different point of view from moro and the wolves because they're her family and she does, of course, um, go with Ashtaka toward the end of the movie. So she kind of, but she's kind of, uh, but but her mother Moro still is in favor of that by the by the end of the movie. She kind of brings them together in a way. Um, so I mean, but but you know, for all that, like I think, I, I don't think this is like a super invalid complaint or anything. I, I definitely see. I see your side of it, and I do think it's interesting that, you know, Ghibli as well thought, maybe we should not call the movie. <laughs> I mean, I'll be I'll be fair here, I'll be very blunt. Holding, like, a film to the wall and nailing it to said wall over a name, it's over its name and the, like, expectations you get from that, that's really small potatoes in the, in the grand scheme of things. Mm-hmm. And certainly, you know, she's a badass through and through, and she has her own fantastic moments throughout the film. And as you say, the ending, uh, which is such a key moment for me, like she is fundamentally part of the, she dictates the terms of it, which I think is very, very important. Um, and shows like how she has changed throughout the film. So yeah, just again, take this as me like being grouchy over a, a feeling I had rather than anything I can necessarily point to and go, well, you know what? His mouth was animated at a 90 degree angle and therefore it looks stupid. It's not something like that. <laughs> oh my. Well. Anyway, that's my complaints about the film out of the way and now the rest of it is just going to be me gushing everywhere. Well, do you want to talk about uh, Ashitaka or do you want to talk about uh, Lady Eboshi? To be honest, um, I don't think we can really discuss them separately if you, if you follow. I see. Well, I, I guess I have different sort of points for each one uh, that are separate, but I do... I, I do take your meaning though i definitely see where you're going with that in that case i would say lay it on me some what points you got well for which should we go uh, you can you can you can pick okay all right well um let's talk about ashitaka then i love this man i <laughs> love this man is it your husband though uh 
he is um not in that way i would say like <laughs> i'm kidding i'm kidding I, well listen there are characters i would say you're my husbando but he's like my hero he's like i deeply admire him as a character i had one of those things in high school late high school because like i said i saw this movie first when i was 17 and late high school, we were doing, I don't know if it was a survey or what, but it was like, who are your heroes? And among them, I put Ashitaka, because uh, I felt that strongly even then, and still feel that strongly today. There's so many, there's big things and there's little things, Shadon. Like, it's a small thing, but when the battle is ongoing uh, toward the end of the movie, and Ashitaka and San are separated, and he needs to get to her and he leaves Yakul with the men from iron town and starts off with one of her brothers, uh, one of the wolves. He doesn't jump on his back immediately. He out of respect for this wolf God, he's like, doesn't assume he's going to get a ride. He starts to run and he runs on his own until the wolf God says, yeah, Hey man, you're slowing me down. Jump on and we'll be faster this way. I mean, come on, I'm your Uber driver and all that. And you get, and you... <laughs> like, the fact that he doesn't ever leave Yakul. Like, Yakul stayed with him when his gunshot wound was being healed, but then when... Oh, come on, that was his starting Pokemon. Of course he's not going to get rid of that. <laughs> well, think about it, right? He got shot by an arrow, <laughs> No, I'm right? kidding. I'm kidding, yeah, I know. And he couldn't ride him anymore. How many characters were just like, well, Noble Steed, you fought well, but peace. I'm out. I've got shit to do. Um... No, he took him and led him by the by the uh, reins uh, all the way to his destination, the men of Iron. Can I can I just add? Can I just add? By the way, I in the initial watch of this thought that elk is fucking dead. <laughs> I really thought they were going to do it, but they didn't, and I'm Thank so you. glad they so did it because you are because you're right. Yakul is is awesome. Yakul is cool, and and of course there's like the badassery that he gets to do. Um, mm. Sort of, I I have a lot more kind of upstanding noble points about it like sort of moral points about him and everything but look he catches a fucking arrow that shot at him and then turns around and shoots it at a guy and decapitates him with it it's a badass man what a, oh i think you what dropped a fucking this sorry baller. <laughs> Just... do you want do you want this back <laughs> oh my god i mean i mean that's the that's the you know nature centric uh nature positive attitude of this film it's recycling <laughs> Oh, and I know that like having him be like have superpowers because of the curse doesn't necessarily like tightly jibe with um the sort of message of like the mark is the hatred that I infests actually, all men and shit. But like, I actually think there is a message behind that, believe it or not. But it's just cool <laughs> that he gets it, to it do is. Shit. Don't, don't don't get me wrong, it is. So here's the thing, right? It is hate that he is infected with. That's basically what the curse is mm-hmm. the curse of rage emotions like even positive ones can be used to awful ends like you can love someone so much that you might never want to let them leave your house for example but i think that on ter- in turn like you know being angry being hateful of something i know that it might sound strange but i think that you can use that to a good end so we see ashitaka like you know restraining like this curse that's on him, this hatred Mm -hmm. at various times throughout the film when it is appropriate for him to do so. But then he utilizes it to accomplish his, his goals as well. Like when he's being attacked to save his own life. 
it's I think the different distinction here is that he manages and controls that hatred and make and masters it for his own use rather than the not strictly speaking curse variety but the regular kind of hatred everyone else feels towards each other right. which blinds them mm-hmm. it doesn't say you know we should never get angry or annoyed or uh, upset with people right but rather that we have to channel it to a positive and a goal in the end. Granted, that means, you know, shooting some motherfucker's head off in a drive-by on your magical elk. <laughs> but nonetheless, nonetheless, like, it's something he still utilizes to get what it, done what needs to be done. Indeed, if I, isn't there a scene, like, where he, I think he pushes, a like, a boulder or moves one of the, uh, the wolves around with it? Like, he performs acts of physical labor the with it. The gate that, yeah, like, the gate. for Irontown that they say listen, stranger, don't be a fool. It takes 10 men to open this gate. And he's like, I came in through this gate this morning. I'm going to leave through this gate right now. <laughs> yeah. Like he ut- that's it. Yeah, he utilizes it for his own ends. Like it doesn't like control him. He masters it and he uses it to do what's necessary. So I think that that's the message behind that. And that in turn, like is why I say that this is relevant to the rest of the characters because their hate has taken control of them. They're no longer in the driving seat. They're just blinded by it. They're just fulfilling base emotional desire of, perpetuating it yeah succumbing to it whereas he masters it it's a good point no that's that's totally fair and and kind of in the same vein of the the smaller things i was talking about a moment ago though like um you know a character consumed by hate we see right at the beginning of the movie nago when he's like barreling toward uh, the amishi village um ashitaka doesn't kill him immediately he's not out there throwing lethal strike like he pleads with him he asks him like you know calm your fear mighty lord like you know what we are just simple people like please like uh don't destroy like very much trying to reason with this guy while still holding him in in the esteem that his godlike position merits despite the fact that he's clearly a threat and he does not start firing arrows until uh his sister kaya is under threat and then he has Mm. no choice and then he turns to that and so just like things like that, where I'm just like thinking to myself as I watch this movie for the umpteenth time, hey, anime creators, can you please look at Prince Ashtaka maybe as some sort of a like a template? Because anime oh, makes I a lot of that. assholes. I would, I would like that myself. Believe me, I've covered a fair few shows now where a gentleman, you know, in a show gets a magical power on his right hand. And... Boy, oh boy, like, you know, for all that, like, I could argue, oh, it's lame that all he gets is super strength out of it, and, you know, he looks like he's got sea urchins on his arm occasionally. You know, he's he's a far more nuanced and interesting character than the arseholes who I've covered in shit like, well, fucking Guilty Crown, I suppose, where they have these wondrous and, like, really cool powers and all that, and, you know, it's like, it's like giving the BFG 9000 to, like, fucking... Like Tom Green. <laughs> Why the fuck would you do that? Why would you give something so cool to a complete shithead? I'm God, just saying. I haven't thought about Tom Green in a while. <laughs> I'm bringing it back for you. I'm so sorry, man. But uh, but no, the the Amishi Prince is like thoughtful and quiet and kind and honest and strong. Like he's just such a good person. And hmm. I would like to see anime about good people more often. Not that you have to every time. I mean, my goodness, we've talked about how much we enjoy villains and flawed characters and and all this. But uh, 
God, which just feels like so many protagonists in modern anime are just assholes. Um, but mm-hmm. but I think so. The larger reasons that I like Ashitaka, going back to the end of the movie, when he and San do not get together. Oh, this is the big. This is the big moment, man. Do I have some feelings on this? Good feelings. Yeah, and San says, uh, "You know, I, I love you, but um, I can't." be with you because I still have so much hate toward human beings for everything that they have done. And he gets it. He doesn't try to change your mind right then. And he doesn't try to change your mind at all. And it's just like, I understand. So I'll visit you in the forest. You and the wolves live there and I'll live uh, with humans in Irontown and I'll try to rebuild. Miyazaki said that going forward, he feels like Ashitaka will be torn apart. But between his love for son and his duty to support Irontown, so between love and duty, these opposite mm. forces pulling him apart. But that won't stop him living the, that way, the way he wants to live, because he treasures both so deeply. And I think this is why yeah. his approach to life has meaning for us living in the world today, because our world is obviously not the world of the the gods and the pure green natural beauty untouched um that's not where we live but we live but but that is still part of our world that's still around us that is still part of reality that we're deeply dependent on and we have to live in iron town and we have to live with the forest and sort of metaphorically speaking right and we have to help bridge the two and we have mm. to be sources of empathy mm. for people on both sides to, to help heal so that the so that we're not torn apart and so that the planet is not torn apart mm. all right so me to i suppose late that since we're talking about the ending let me talk about why i really really fucking love this ending here's the thing right it's all well and good to have a story that ends with everyone riding off into the sunset and everything's happy but the thing about being about hatred is as San herself says, she's not, like, purged herself of it entirely. Maybe that would happen over time. We don't know. I'll leave that to the fanficers to, you know, figure out. But the point is, is that hatred and new conflicts can arise at any given time. So I actually really like the relationship that uh, she and Astaka, like, have, like, this working relationship, if you will, where they remain in a kind of state of tension towards each other, her, you know, being nature, him being, you know... Uh, humankind as a kind of thing that they always have to be conscious of and cultivate and work towards developing mm-hmm. rather than lax like lapsing over time and letting it just like fall by the wayside because they forget they don't simply settle down with each other and let that be that they as i say have that tension that ongoing re-examination like where they'll continue to like catch up without ever getting too close to the point where they become too comfortable with each other. And I really, mm. really think that's a, mm-hmm. a stunning way to, a stunningly mature way to end the film uh, with the message that it's not a one and done thing to simply save the forest spirit and all life on earth. This could happen again. Yeah, There could be conflicts that continue on. Indeed, the samurai conflict with uh, Iboshi is certainly not over. And, you know, the conflict between the the, the forces of nature and humanity could very well come back to the fore again if, like, someone violates territory or, you know, and 
for sparks it off again as they did previously. It doesn't say that, you know, we're one and done when we've done a good thing. We have to keep doing it. Mm-hmm. We have to keep being conscious of our relationship to like nature and nature vice versa. Um, and we have to, you know, always be aware of that and not, you know, let ourselves fall into old habits, old ways, and dare I say, old, you know, grudges. Mm-hmm. It's, it's so mature. Yeah. I fucking love how that happens because it to me speaks to that aspect of humanity that i find like is often something that people mock but is actually a source of strength which is it's not that you know we never make mistakes we never you know have moments of weakness and when i say weakness i don't mean in terms of like you know being upset i mean like you know where we give in to like temptations to do something awful but rather that when we have these moments of weakness we have the power to recognize them for what they are and then stop them dead in their tracks it's not, you know, a case of we'll never we're going to end up flawless individuals who never think awful things, but rather that we may well think these awful things, but we will never put them into practice. We will quell them and silence them each and every time they come up because that's human nature. Mm-hmm. And I think that's fucking incredible. It's such a great ending for the film that in itself has been very mature and very nuanced in how it portrays like both sides, the gods and, you know, Iboshi and Ironsown, as having their reasons that, while understandable, are also like irrelevant versus the, you know, destruction that they're wreaking on each other, to then follow through by not having a fairy tale ending, so to speak. Good shit, Miyazaki. Good fucking shit. Yeah. Yeah, it's, you know, fitting that Iboshi and the Iron Town folks are going to build a town because that's almost like a metaphor for, you know, what is being asked of everyone at the end as well, like internally and relationship-wise. You know, just getting one thing right, right? Like just laying one stone, you're not done. You have to build the thing. Like a foundation is just a foundation, but it could be swept away like you said it could it could be destroyed uh as easily as you built it you have to work at it you have to build it up over time you have to defend it um Mm -hmm. yeah man that's really good (laughs) if i may if i may just say like i wouldn't want to see this necessarily because i think the film is perfect no don't say it (laughs) princess mononoke (laughs) 2 no 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 hear hear (laughs) me out though because that would play into the very idea i've just mentioned that it would you know that new conflicts can arise and we have to be vigilant about those. Now, I, I, I'm of the opinion that we don't want that because I think that that would also then kind of, you know, dilute the message that we can overcome it. Like, oh, it happened again? Oh, fuck. Yeah. Really? Really? <sighs> you, gone, you, gone, you gone done that shit? You gone, you gone done burn the forest down? Nice one, douchebag. But uh, no, I, that's why I think that I'm more open to that idea than I would be with, say, a Labyrinth sequel, for example, or any other Ghibli sequel, just because I think that it would play into that idea that, you know, it could go wrong again, but then we can in turn overcome it again. So, but yeah, the, like, that revelation I had, I didn't realize at the time I was watching it in Fab Cafe, probably because I was on my third pie at that point. I don't tend to the drink what music. watch. <laughs> but no, there was no J-pop on just yet. Um, so... I now have a much stronger appreciation for this film for the fact that it's not willing to give the easy answer mm-hmm, at the end. Mm-hmm. There's no, there's nothing easy about any of the situations in this film, with the possible exception of give the fucking head back to the god of death, you <laughs> moron. 
Like, that to me seems pretty cut and dry. Like, oh, I'm going to get money from the Emperor. Guess what? Money ain't worth shit if everyone's dead. You know? Check out my pile check out my pile of gold. Oh also I died for it. Well done. <laughs> oh my gosh. This will take us into Lady Aboshi stuff. I think Ashitaka serves us really well as a model for moral decision making. And I'm gonna be borrowing liberally from Ian Danskin of Innuendo Studios here. He did a ah, tremendous yes, video yes. on uh called Lady Eboshi is Wrong, and I'm sure we're going to link it in the, the show notes, but because um, it's not on YouTube anymore. No idea why. I'm sure it's a copyright issue, or maybe people are being assholes in the comments. Who could say? Uh, but it's still on the internet. If you Google it, you can find it. Um, but I'm going to be borrowing about this point and then some of the Lady Eboshi stuff, because I think he dissects all of that incredibly well. But... Ashitaka is a moral decision-making model, right? Like, so he's meant to go into the world with eyes unclouded, which is a way of saying... So sober. So, right, uh-huh, yeah, no ecstasy. Um, and also he is going to consider, he's meant to consider all sides of the problem facing, facing the world. And he does that. He goes to Iron Town, hears out Lady Eboshi, meets the people there, doesn't shy away from from any of that. You know, meets the Princess Mononoke, uh, San, and the wolf gods, and Okoto, too. Um, he doesn't sort of uh, close his mind off from a side of the conflict that he's decided he doesn't like or he's against or mm. he has some preconceived notions about. He hears everyone out. And then, I think this is crucial, he chooses a side. Uh, I yes. I do not think that the movie makes any bones about this. I don't think so. And when you said Ashitaka is a peacemaker, I think that you were correct. I do also think that people can kind of have the wrong idea about peacemakers and about empathy in general, and that it's supposed to be this sort of uh, version of neutrality, right? But mm-hmm. Ashitaka actually is empathetic with everyone on all sides of this conflict, but he still chooses the forest. He chooses yeah. with to side with the dear God and with say, preserving his life and with keeping the forest alive. If I may just make an observation then based on what you've just said, like this might be a new criticism of mine, or maybe just again, call an observation really. Because you are correct. Ashitaka does choose the forest and make no bones about it, folks. Like, if you still haven't seen the film, uh, firstly, get your fucking head checks. Secondly, um, it is he's unambiguously right on this. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, killing the forest spirit results in, well... God, how best to put this? It's like watching the Lunar Cry from Final Fantasy VIII, except it's happening everywhere and it's also in 4K. Enjoy that nightmare fuel. So, he is unambiguously correct in his assertion. And that's fine. I don't mind. I definitely do not mind him being like right on that point. But do you think it might actually harm the idea of him being like this moral decision maker that in the end he was so unambiguously right? Because if he can so clearly see that, shouldn't everyone else? Or in turn, does that then, you know, play into the point I made, which everyone is so blinded by hatred that they literally cannot recognize that killing this forest spirit will, well, it'll be the end of the world as we know it and we don't feel fine. Well, I think 
you could say that, like, yeah, some of the characters are definitely blinded by hatred. But also, I think prior to Irontown uh, getting blown up and San saving her, that Lady Aboshi, um, no matter what arguments you used, she would dig her heels in on her position and she would come at you with good reasons why she's doing the things that she's doing. I think, mm. and and that's what's so incredible, I think, about the conflict portrayed in this movie is that on the one hand, Ashitaka is unambiguously right and he's picked a side and that's the right side, but the people on the other side the wrong side they they are wrong but they still have what are them or sorry what are to them good and sufficient reasons to be doing what they're doing this is very very hard all of this shit um hmm. and i think just because y- you were doing the wrong thing doesn't mean that you don't have sort of activating and um animating reasons to why that you would you would do that thing that aren't necessarily just based in hatred Hmm. I've just had a kind of wicked thought and you're going to hate me for doing this but here's the thing though right I think that as much as I said before that Monoke has become more relevant because of the climate change issue I mean it's unambiguously you know true in my eyes at least that climate change is a real thing and we need to kind of you know deal with it because I mean I don't know about you doc but I don't particularly like the idea of living on our own you know homemade version of Venus to be quite honest if it ever gets that hot so the reason I'm bringing this up, though, is that if, like, in the same vein that, you know, that Eboshi is so unambiguously wrong, like, does that not weaken the film somewhat? Like, when we compare it to, like, or rather weaken its relevance somewhat, that we are willing to give her that nuance about her reasoning why, when the outcome is so clearly not in doubt, that it's the end of everything. It's the, it's the way things are in our own world. You know, the like mm. we we can we can sit here and feel like okay, the science is on our side. We're totally right about climate change, or we're totally right about any issue. I don't know, like um, women's right to abortion or the existence of God, whatever. But like, I, the, which is that's a different thing. That's not a moral question. That's just a sort of scientific or or religious question. But moral issues specifically and political ones, we could feel that way. But there are still people that will push back. Oh, I, I agree that they they will. Uh, I'm not saying that the, I'm not saying that she shouldn't. Yeah, I don't think the fact that there's a right answer in any way undercuts the points or the good things about this movie. Oh no, no. I'm thinking just more like it's just funny how times change your interpretation of it because prior to the science becoming so understood as it was about climate change, um, like I would probably not have come to this realization. But like I say, you know, for all that we can sympathize with Eboshi's, like you know agenda of like saving the brothel workers saving the lepers and building a home for them like she is so unambiguously in the wrong to the point where it will be the end of everyone you know end of all life on earth that do those reasons even matter anymore what reason could there possibly be now i'll confess as i've been saying this as i i will confess though as i've been saying this i should probably point out like, it's taken us a long time to come to an understanding of what climate change is. We've had plenty of tools to do that, you know, like computer simulations, actual studies, you name it, core samples from ice, blah de blah de blah de blah de blah I could go on for hours mm-hmm. about it. Uh, Iboshi, she's a, she's a soldier, and in diegetic terms, like, you know, she doesn't really know ahead of time 
that killing the forest spirit, I suppose, is going to be the end of everything. I suppose I should cut us some slack on that. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I think that's a really good point. Totally, yeah. yeah. She is definitely not aware that, like, there will be sort of a, a causal relationship between her shooting this deer and, you know, death of the planet. <laughs> yeah. I suppose, yeah. Uh, although, that being said, um, I don't think that maybe applies quite so much to uh, G. Kobo. Uh, uh, because he, no. yeah, he definitely, he definitely knows. He does, yeah. What? You, you don't want to know something crazy, like, and, <laughs> like, how do I... I thought about not bringing this up at all because it was so weird. But when talking about Jiko, like Miyazaki said, um, oh, he's the Japanese person in this movie. <laughs> what? What? That's a, uh, oh my God. That's, wow. <laughs> that's that's certainly a statement. It, it, is, um, it is quite a statement. But yeah, he basically is like, yeah, he's kind of an asshole when, it, when the rubber meets the road. <laughs> Yeah. Oh God. I mean, I'll just say, folks, folks that listen at home, like, I'm gonna just say that for all that I might like, you know, be going back and forth on my various feelings about the film and how my understanding of it has changed over time relative to our modern world. I mean, you know, it's clearly, you know, something that has become more relevant. Like, I don't think any of us can deny that. The fact that I can derive such meaning from this, even like, you know, that's forced me to constantly challenge my own assertions about the film itself. And my understanding of like morality, so I like what more of a like endorsement do you want for how rich the story is here? Yeah, that we can get such discussion out of this, like where we can look at these characters. Like, I mean, we said that they were nuanced, and by God, I hope we've proved that. We've not even really discussed as much as we otherwise could do about it. For example, I know we're, we'll get to it. Definitely, I, that's the last big item on my agenda is Lady Aboshi. But just to close the loop on my um, moral decision making model with Ashitaka. Um, so yeah, he chooses a side unambiguously, and that but he empathizes with both sides all the way through. You know, he could kill easily kill Lady Aboshi anytime he wanted to, and it would solve a lot of problems. But that is not in, in his moral calculus to do. It's not a thing that he would do at all. I mean, like he he told her, like, uh, I would let my arm tear you apart if it would end all the hate, but it would just multiply it. So why would I do that? Um, and he, he doesn't let his empathy for her though. And Toki and Kuroko and the people he saves in Irontown, uh, blind him that there is a right choice. Like I said, I think people have this idea about empathy that it's sort of a mealy mouthed or kind of neutral party thing, or that you're meant to say, well, no one's right and no one's wrong. Everyone is just... Um, the rights and freedoms of all sentient beings, <laughs> blah, 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 right. blah, like, blah. But, like, no. I mean, he thinks Lady Aboshi's straight up wrong. And he, but and and he opposes her throughout the movie. He throws a knife into her gun. He stuns her by hitting her in the in the chest. Like, But he's trying to save her. He's trying to save yeah, in her fact, the whole time. In, fact, in, the, in the penultimate moment before... Like the forest god is is slain. Like he breaks the gun, then as you say, but he could have killed her. Yes. Like he Easy. tried to disarm her first and foremost before killing her, even though he had a pretty good idea at that point that if she did kill the forest spirit, then well, we're going up the creek without the paddle, so to speak. What a character, man! I love this guy. I love this character. He, he is he is great. But I've loved. I've grown to love Lady Aboshi. 
as well, even more. Uh, not more than Ashtaka, but I, I guess I should sort of say I've I've grown to love her more and more each time I watch the movie. But sorry, you go ahead. You finish about Ashtaka. I didn't no, no, no. Okay, no, carry on. Uh, I was always just really going to say something in affirmation, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 just interesting, right? That like, you know, you were you were talking about her being so unambiguously wrong. I don't know if there's a way that she could even see that before everything that happened at the end happened, like. Does it strike you that like if like San and Aboshi sat down for tea together, like they would come to some kind of middle ground? No. Nope. Like they both nope. want to destroy each other's home. Nope. I think I think that uh San in that particular dinner scene, like if that was happening, she'd probably be stabbing the table repeatedly in that kind of way you play with your hand. You know, do 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 do. Just because she's trying to like distract herself from actually stabbing Aboshi in the face. Yes, yes, yes. So, no, I, I don't think that was possible. And and the thing is, like, I think, again, that's why Ashtaka serves the outside purpose that he does, because you can't, like, beat hate with hate, so to speak, you know. Mm-hmm. You're only going to end up, like, perpetuating and feeding off of each other, like, you know. But there's a saying that I'm very fond of, which is that there's a problem with the old adage of eye for an eye, which is that everyone ends up blind. And... I think that that maybe in turn is why, as much as I say that it is kind of like chilling to think that, well, it would take an outside force to make them get out of their funk and stop trying to murder each other. Maybe that's the pragmatic and honest truth of it, that sometimes we mm. can become so caught in that quagmire and that cycle of like vengeance and and violence that it does take a third party to like play peacemaker. Indeed, that's happened a lot of times through the like through the past. Like, I mean... I think Kennedy, for example, was influential in getting the Good Friday Agreement uh, uh, created for Northern Ireland uh, following the Troubles. Mm-hmm. Now, just before any history buffs come in and start like kicking down my front door and throwing things at me, that's my very, very basic, like from memory knowledge of it, and it's probably a lot more nuanced than that. Maybe Kennedy did not have such a strong involvement. But nonetheless, I can certainly point to instances in the past where that's been the case. Yeah, and that does make sense to me. Just someone who is not, who hasn't been poisoned, and you know, by the cycle already. And um, but but about about Aboshi, I I think so. Jiko is like a bad faith actor in this movie, but Aboshi is not. Like she's a good faith actor, and that is why I just adore. Like, I can't think of anything, like, new to say I don't think that we've already said, except that I don't like her hat. Her hat is the only <laughs> thing I dislike about her. But, like, um, but no, yeah, she's just, like, has her own reasons that, like, make sense to her and that are, on on their own, divorced from the solution. Like, they're really good things. Hmm. And I think she's, like, a really admirable woman in a lot of ways. She's and... she's hubris basically, like good old hubris. I've got good intentions, but I'm just going about them in the wrong way, and that's why we can't ultimately really hate her for what she's done, even though some of the stuff she's done is quite awful, like what she did with uh, now um, the Boar God, for example. Yeah, Nago. Yeah, Nago, um, where she deliberately poisoned him with that bullet rather than just killing him. I mean, that sends a statement, certainly. Don't get me wrong, but it's also incredibly cruel on her part. So. Again, I suppose the argument is always, hey, best of intentions, be careful, take a step back, don't go too far. I'm going to make one final point, which is going to be about San herself. Okay. So, 
what I really appreciate about San's presence in the film, just on its own, just by her merely existing, is that she serves as a bridge in her own right to show that for all that, you know, we humans, such as Eboshi, have got this, like, you know, quagmire of hatred, that the gods are no better. Now, mm. and now, like, that someone who, like her, could have been, is objectively not a wolf, but was raised like one. I think it speaks to, like, how it's not what you're born with. Like, you know, you're not born to hate something. But rather, you're raised that point. And indeed, there's kind of a contradiction in her existing as she does at all. Because on the one hand, the wolves hate the humans. They hate the fuck out of them. But they still saved her and raised her. Which, you know, arguably doesn't make sense. But, you know, we're not lo- like even, God, even the gods in this film are not necessarily logical beings. No. And I think it speaks against the hope that even is present before, like, all the other yeah. stuff happens, that, hey, you know what? Like, they still spared her. They still recognized she was an innocent. Granted, they then passed on that same ideology of, you know, destroy all humans to her, which is not a good thing by any measure of the mean. Any means of the measure, sorry, I mean to say. But they still took a step further as opposed to doing what they probably would have done otherwise, which was, well, chicken nugget. A true nugget, yeah. Yeah, so her existence alone in the film, like, even before she says a single line of dialogue is again a fine example of the of the layers that are built up onto this conflict and how there are shades to the characters that suggest that even though they are currently, you know, going through the motions of just killing each other, we fight, we fight back, we get hit, we fight back, blah, 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 blah. Like long-standing gang violence, really, more than anything else. That mm-hmm. the door has always been open for them to leave, and indeed they've kind of looked out the window at that once or twice. Mm. But they just need to go a bit further and they need a push to do it, which is where Ashitaka comes in. Yeah, San is actually involved in my... It's really hard to pick a favorite scene. And I'll ask you about yours in just a bit, but I think this one is definitely a contender, if not the winner. Uh, my, mine is definitely the ending, but... Uh, oh, okay. Are, okay. But there are still plenty of other ones. But anyway, lay out yours. Go on. Mine is uh, when Ashitaka has had his curse lifted by the forest spirit. And uh, San is, is visiting him Telling, telling him about Yakul and how they had a talk. And Ashitaka's depleted of strength. You know, he's been shot through the stomach and was only spared by the deer god. And he still can't move uh, and he needs to be nursed back to help. And, and San gives him some food to eat and he can't even eat it. And she's like, chew. And he tries to chew, but his mouth muscles are so weak it just falls out of his mouth. Mm. And she chews the food for him. Wow. And puts it in his mouth. And then she looks over at him after tearing off some more, after doing it two or three times, and he's crying. Like, and the music has completely faded out. It's just silence. And you're sort of just surrounded by like the quiet beauty of this this grove, this this pool of the the deer god and the purity of it, the sanctity of it. And uh, it's amazing. It, like, moves my heart every single time. It's so beautiful. Yeah. There are, like, for all that we've said that this film can be quite dark in places, there's still plenty of light in it. And plenty of, like, moments of levity, like back in the, you know, the village with uh, that lady voiced by Jane Pinkett Smith. <laughs> uh, now I've forgotten her name. You've... I've forgotten it Why too. Because did... so, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm a very bad anime critic. I'm so sorry. Yeah, me too. Toki, yeah. 
Mm-hmm. Great moments with her and uh, just just ragging the hell out of uh, Kuroku. <laughs> I wish the wolves had eaten you. Uh, <laughs> useless. You won't be able to work with a broken arm. And <laughs> I love that Ashitaka is like, um, well, they, I was, you know, I was starting to think I had done something wrong by bringing him back alive. <laughs> it's amazing. Well, you oh, know, so you know, you know, you know how it is. You know, you're just there. You're trying to raise your daughter into a wholesome, respectable individual. She just brings this random boy back one time. Doesn't even give you any advance warning of it. And you wake, you know, you find him on the couch, and he's completely and utterly like, you know, shit faced, and he's rolling over and all that. It's like I didn't raise you to be this way. <laughs> I'm saying oh that God. I'm saying that San might be a little rebellious. Not that Maybe. there are not that just there aren't any hints of that in the film. <laughs> no. Uh, but but yeah, this movie makes me laugh. Uh, it you know moves me to tear up with the scene I talked about. It has like the the mystery and the beauty of nature, so much, but also horror and grotesque uh, scenes and and brutal violence. A lot of blood is vomited up, um, but also like stirring monologues and like compelling characters and uh amazing scenery um to me like yeah i could just watch this movie over and over shadon like yeah all these elements i love and like there's never like in so many almost any anime movie or tv series there's always like in my brain i don't want to admit it out loud but always in my brain it's like oh this part this is the part i'm not as into this is sort of a slow part but this movie, just I never have that. Every single scene is a scene that I um, really, really, really like. I agree. I think I'll close out my thoughts on the film by bringing it back to what I said at the very beginning, which is just to speak to my own experience here of when I saw it, which was I saw it firstly in a public place under that kind of atmosphere where people were talking openly about it, making the mega comment, you know, everyone's having a couple of drinks while they're doing it. And that's... Not to say that like people weren't engaged with the film, far from it, but they were engaged for it for like its wondrous beauty, like you know, and this thing that Ghibli has of a reverence for nature that doesn't go so far as to like almost become like cult, like you know, we must go back to the earth kind of thing. Like, like the idea <laughs> of Iron Town, like for example, as I say, is not a bad one, and the film doesn't present it as such. It's just its execution that's the problem. But nonetheless, people were enjoying it on that kind of level where it's more towards the surface appreciation of it as a as a work of art in the sense of, like, its artistic qualities. Watching it on my own, in the comfort of my own home, you know, with my headphones on, letting me soak in the words, soaking in my own time, I came to appreciate so much more the second time around for its actual substance. I mean, I suppose one might argue that it's trite and passe to just simply throw in yet another, like, you know, don't destroy nature message, as Ghibli often, like, do in their films. But, again, that's missing, ironically, the forest for the trees on how like there is that level of detail on the character motivations and the reasons why they're all doing it and the fact that these somehow coexist with the fact that reasons be damned people can still you know be blinded by rage and you know vitriol for others and other groups which is something we need to overcome i mean i hope like i mean i probably not even covered like a a fifth of like the things you could take away from this film oh my god but i'm sure I'm sure that at least I hope I've impressed on you that there is a lot of depth to it. Like, 
Rather, I think that people might want to look at Ghibli sometimes like as this thing from Japan that actually reaches a level of high art. Like, and from, you know, looking at it in trailers and such like that, like, there is a genuine heart to it. Mm, and mm-hmm. and what's more, it's not like, you know, the same necessarily as Lapita or Kaguya. Like, they all have their own messages to bring and they're all delivered in the same... Think of it, I mean, think of it like like we said with Gaiman. Like, Gaiman's got a lot of stories, done a lot of stories and he has his own very distinct style of doing it. But his stories always have something to say. And they are, and in Ghibli's case, like, for all that they have this style of theirs, you know, this very, like, art house kind of thing, this incredible level of detail, the hard work they point to everything, you know, they still really do make very human films. And it's just it's it's just a joy to watch them every single time for that reason. Yeah, I, I love what you said there about high art, but but with with a heart, you know, not abstract. Something mm. it, it you could sink your teeth into it, mm-hmm. um, and you could feel really strongly about it, and it, and it will, you know, it, it's the kind of thing that there's depth there, and you could, like you said, work to mine all that out but it will also this movie will meet you where you are in a a lot of ways i think i would agree anything more to talk about this wonderful there's i think there's more we could say but i think maybe we broadly covered all the topics we wanted to touch on yeah i've certainly said my piece on it um just to reiterate like the stuff i said before that i was a bit more negative on like in the grand scheme of things that's all like minor thing like stuff like niggly little details that's just more my own like viewpoint. Don't take anything that I've said in the negative or indeed even the positive for that matter as gospel. My overall opinion on the film though is much like, you know, I came away what from the first time I watched it very positive and I came away from it even more positive the second time around. Who knows if I watch it again a third time, maybe I'll like it even more. Maybe the complaints <laughs> I originally had that I've mentioned in this podcast will disappear and I'll look back on my younger self and I'll think, God, he was a fucking moron, wasn't he? <laughs> That's, so yeah, that's how uh, our lives generally are about most ring, ring, ringing endorsement from me on Mon. Okay, what a great surprise! <laughs> Honestly, <laughs> uh, yeah. Eat, look, I've watched like I said a bunch of times, and and uh, certainly the initial few watches, I was like, "This is really good." Oh man, this is really. Oh my god, this is an all-time favorite. Like each time, just liked it more and more, and and it's still like a fresh experience for me. I I keep either being struck anew by things or, or kind of appreciating things from a different angle or getting just whole new things out of it. Like, yeah, there's there's a lot to this movie. You should definitely see it. I think it is... Um, I, I haven't seen as much 90s Ghibli as some, uh, or, or as much 80s, certainly. Or, sorry, as much as I have seen 80s Ghibli, because there's less of it. But of the the Ghibli that I have seen of the 90s, this is my favorite. And easily my favorite. And one of my favorite anime films, one of my favorite films, period, of all time. I I love this movie. Please watch it. It, it, To me, like, of the three we've watched thus far, Lapis is still my personal favorite. But I think that, again, it speaks to the quality of Ghibli's works that, like, for all I can say that this is, like, a second or a third versus Kaguya uh, and Mm -hmm. and Lapita. They're all great in their own way because they've all got their own identity and their own things to say. It, it's a blessing to have like a, a rich library of work from a studio like this where 
you know, for all that we can say that they have that, like, sensibility about them, that you can identify them as a Ghibli film, that they all have their own flavors to them. Mm-hmm. So for all that I might say, well, I like Lapis and more, don't take that to mean this film is bad. Quite the opposite. It's a crowded, it's a crowded, like, place, you know, that these films exist in terms of quality. It's almost yeah. going to, like, break out into a fight, methinks, you know, to wrestle for the top spot. <laughs> it's like cho- choosing children. Oh, oh no yeah so like, man the sophie's choice right in ghibli's choice even in, t- in terms of picking at which one's best uh it's true yeah i think that we're we're done talking about princess mononoke for now for now uh, <laughs> and, and we're done with the christmas ghibli's for now oh wow um, yeah but we'll be I, I think we can say we'll be back next year oh we'll unquestionably if look I really enjoyed doing, like, this has been some of the most rewarding podcasting I've done uh, ever. So uh, I'm definitely up for the Ghibli project uh, next year. Um, but we'll certainly, whether we do Ghibli or not, we'll do something for the holidays. We always do. But for this holiday, 2019's uh, Christmas, Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, um mega christmas lost christmas don't forget that lost christmas festivus <laughs> so sorry. Uh, all of the above <laughs> i hope that everyone out there uh is having an incredible time a safe time whether you're by yourself or with family with mm. friends i hope that you are content i hope that you are warm and i hope that you are happy and i hope that this podcast series has been able to bring uh some extra warmth and happiness into your holiday time or any time if you're listening to this later on honestly these these are pretty evergreen uh damn straight could not put it by myself and one final thing i'll add is that to firstly thank all of our lovely patrons for helping support us to make projects like this possible it is very humbling and an honor to have people be willing to finance us in such a way to cover this it's actually genuinely still kind of takes my breath away when i think about it that people would do that yeah so thank you so much from the bottom of my heart for doing that mm-hmm. uh, and we'll continue to do our best to you know return your investment with good content and secondly just in general even if you're not a patron thank you you the listener for taking the time out of your day to listen to us talk about this film or indeed if you listen to any of our other podcasts like it's really, really appreciated. All I would ask in turn, if you've got the time, is just to drop us a like or a subscribe on wherever you may find this, just to help our discoverability. If you've got any thoughts or comments, you're more than welcome to send to us on that service or indeed via Twitter at Warridesho. Uh, if you want to become a patron to get early access, do check us out at patreon.com forward slash Warridesho. But yeah, um, we do this for, for you guys and girls and uh, non-binary pals, you know, everyone and everyone in between. And... I'm glad that you hopefully that you've all enjoyed it and we will continue to keep doing it. As long as people want to hear it, we'll keep doing it. So again, yeah, from the bottom of my heart, thank you all so very much. Happy Christmas, happy holidays, happy whatever you plan to do. Make the best of it. I know that, I mean, I can attest personally that I do find Christmas difficult. There's no way of putting that out. But you know what? Like if there's anything that these films have taught me, particularly Kaguya, given the light of what you said on it, Doc, is that make the best of it. It might still be a bit rubbish, to be honest, but there's no harm in trying to make a good time for yourself. Yeah. I hope that that, and I hope that for people who are struggling at Christmas, who may be listening to this, that you do find that. Here, here. 
Um, and with that said, happy holidays, happy new year, and embrace each other, everyone, to the ends of the universe. Good night. Good night.